Welcome to the Marshall Pro Podcast and our Week in IndyCar series, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and also our awesome pals at Bell Racing Helmets here in the good old United States of America. For our guests, we have one fine American coming up second, but first, an even finer Swede, our pal, Felix Rosenquist, making his, I'm not sure how many appearances, but been on here plenty become one of our favorites and coming off of a weekend where he almost won his first IndyCar race fed a wheel to his teammate reigning champion Scott Dixon who did go on to win we saw everything that told us years ago he was a very special talent that needed to be in the series so a weekend of validation for Chip Ganassi Racing in hiring Felix really happy for him so our conversation's quite a bit of fun owing to the somewhat disjointed schedule that i've been on now for a little while i recorded all of your q a last night interviewed oliver askew yesterday interviewed felix just a little while ago and now i'm recording the intro last so sorry guys kind of the way things are mention here quickly of all those who support this show that are good pals at torontomotorsports.com as well have told me that if you visit torontomotorsports.com between now and august 5th and enter in mpp as in marshall pro podcast if you enter in mpp when you check out you will get 15 percent off of everything in stock so pretty cool so if you listen and you like buying t-shirts stickers models whatever use mpp Take 15% off, and our pals in Toronto will send you some really awesome racing memorabilia or gear or whatever. A couple of interesting things to talk about here before we get into Felix's interview, followed by young Oliver Askew, who kicked a lot of butt last weekend at Mid-Ohio with the Andretti Autosport Indy Lights team, who's currently leading the Indy Lights Championship, and then close with your Q&A. So we had Alexander Rossi confirmed... Finally, at Andretti Autosport, loved seeing that the scenario that I happened to lay out a few months ago, all based on a couple of questions you all sent in, turned out to be exactly what happened. And so the question a couple of months ago of, hey, we keep hearing Rossi, Penske, Andretti, what's going to happen? Schmidt, maybe. And so the the scenario that I mentioned that made the most sense to me that is has borne out to be the one that happened was going to Penske would be great, obviously. You know that he is going to have the sponsorship needed. All, any and all questions are going to be removed. Just drive the car. That's all you have to do there. Certainly at Andretti Autosport, he's built a great home, great engineer, great engineer who wouldn't be able to go with him to Penske uh, with Jeremy Millis having worked for Penske in the past. Both sides really parting ways and saying that's not going to happen again. Alexander would have to leave a really comfortable scenario where he's clearly the future of Andretti Autosport to go to Penske. But to feel comfortable, to want to return, the thing that made the most sense that we spelled out was if Michael Andretti and his team can indeed secure the financial end for Alexander for a multi-year contract. That would be, in my opinion back then, the thing that made him stay. So going to Roger, 
know that that's all going to be in place. Just drive, go win yourself championships. Pretty, I would say almost a guarantee all those things would happen. But give me a reason to stay. Tell me that, whether it's Napa or someone else, tell me that the money is going to be in place during a new multi-year contract. And honestly, that's about all I need to hear. But that's something you're going to have to get worked out. And as the team revealed, that is indeed the thing that took the longest to make happen. And once they did, well, here we are. And that's a great thing. They told us that AutoNation, which has obviously been a part of the Meyer Shank racing team with Jack Harvey's effort there connected with Schmidt-Peterson Motorsports, also on Ryan Hunter Ray's car a bit as well, that expanding the AutoNation relationship is what helped get this deal over the line for Rossi to stay some folks may have written about this part. I don't know. I, I will readily admit I haven't had a chance to look around and see what others have said. But the thing that struck me that's possibly a negative is it took another major partner stepping in to take many races to seal this deal, meaning we're going to go from having next year uh, where this year we've had Napa Auto Parts as the primary, I think at all, but what, a couple races? Not many. But by and large, Alexander has been in a Napa-presented car. Uh, next year's going to be nine races. So I don't know the finances behind the deal with the team currently, but I can tell you that at least as I interpreted it, it's great to hear that AutoNation is stepping up. Truly awesome. And it won't be at the uh, detriment of Meyer Shank Racing going forward. AutoNation's VP also came out with a quote saying they're talking with MSR and uh, they plan to be back next year and hopefully full-time. So great to hear that AutoNation is spreading more of the wealth instead of shifting it from one team to another. But the only thing that struck me a little bit was, huh, I don't like what I'm hearing or seeing on the surface which is Napa apparently winding back its funding and being on the car for approximately half of the races next year. Other thing too, which I need to just inquire about more. I also found it interesting. They were talking about how many races they would be on, who would be where on what car for how many races, which would imply they have a pretty good feeling from IndyCar as to what the exact schedule would be. So yet another thing. Uh, we don't really expect much in the way of differences for next year. Of course, Richmond is the question. Will we be going back to an oval there? But don't expect a lot of changes, but definitely interesting just to know that they have an, at least announced what will be on, which brand will be on the car for how many races next year. Other things too, uh, and I'll clear through a couple of quick items and then get to the major topic, which has cropped up in the last couple of days. So this means nothing. I'm just sharing it because it's a related factoid that stood out. Unfortunately, we learned and heard over the weekend here locally in the Bay Area that there was a shooting at the uh, the Gilroy Garlic Festival, which is just an age-old tradition here uh, in, in the deep, deep South Bay. I mean, it's half hour, 45 minutes south of San Jose. But heard about a shooting there or heard about that shooting there. And just by sheer coincidence, the vast majority of the folks who were shot by this uh, sick human being happened to be driven or medevaced to the uh, Santa Clara 
uh, Valley Medical Center, which happens to be where uh, my wife and I are located. And uh, we're not in the trauma wing or any of that. But, um, yeah, I mean, that just, again, means nothing. And it's not necessarily in any way related to IndyCar. It's just kind of interesting to be there with my lady and just coming off of an amazing IndyCar race, which was able to uh, to use the NBC Sports app to watch with her um, or with her in that room, mostly me watching it. Uh, but then to realize that, geez, in the middle of all this, um, yeah, this pretty amazing medical center that we were in in San Jose is also now tending to something else happening. So just sharing that as a little factoid that's meaningless. Based on the amount of amazing questions as well that have come in over the last couple of weeks, which I address more in depth when we get to the Q&A section, I'm going to do my best to try and get to as many as I can in roughly an hour. Last week, it took more than two hours to answer all the questions that came in. So uh, definitely going to ask you to do more liking of the questions that you want me to answer, and I might just try and filter a little bit more based on the available time that I have because at least with how our routine has evolved here recently, uh, I do have some time in the morning now, which I haven't had for quite a while to do a little bit of work. And then it is uh, heading out and heading off to San Jose to be with my lady. So nonetheless, uh, thank you. It's a blessing to have so many questions coming in each week now, but we'll definitely ask you all to help me a little bit more to uh, maybe filter the ones that you really want me to get to so that if there are ones that aren't getting a lot of likes, least you'll know why maybe i have uh, been a little bit more selective uh, let's look at one other item here i could use your help on for sure so this is a send me a tweet uh give me something on Bookface or instagram or whatever so coming out of mid ohio uh, i have not had enough time to write what i would normally do is some kind of here's all the bullet points and all the thoughts and breaking it down and analyzing it in 20 different ways it's not a huge option for me right now so been considering, should I maybe try and do that in week in IndyCar episodes that follow an IndyCar race? Should I do some sort of recap? And I don't mean rehashing the stuff we all see and know, but just part of the reasons that I do what I do is maybe I can bring some analysis or insight into something. Something might stand out to me that doesn't to others. Uh, and just kind of present a little bit of a recap and, and salient points portion here in the upfront of each episode following a race. Also, many of your questions each week center on the race that just happened. So don't necessarily want to give a full thing up front, then get to your questions and essentially be regurgitating things that you asked. So it's a question I'd love to hear or love an answer to and hear your thoughts on. Would you like me to try, try and do some sort of Pruitt's thoughts following a race that might add some new context? Or would you like me to stick with the current practice and ongoing practice of you all send in a lot of great questions about races that happen. So just stick to those salient points and answering the questions you send in. So give me your thoughts. And as usual, I will go with the prevailing wisdom that comes in. So the most interesting thing that has flared up here in the, I guess the story came out a day or two ago from uh, young Jim Aiello from the Indy Star really like Jim, truly really like Jim as a person, but also think he's a fine reporter as well. Posted a story saying that 
Aero Schmidt Peterson Motorsports and McLaren Racing are talking. Also mentioned that Colton Herta could be a driver that they are pursuing. And there's been a lot of questions that have come in here that I'd normally save for the Q&A section, but this warrants moving to the upfront and exploring it as much as I can here. And then we will get going with our man, Felix Rosenquist. There are a lot of things about this that I cannot get into because I can't, which is sometimes the case, unfortunately. From what I know that Jim wrote, there's definitely good reason to have written what he wrote. So it's not a question of, you know, judging what he wrote. It's just, you know, what Jim wrote, thumbs up. Uh, this has been circulating for a while uh, we had, I believe it was May, there was another uh, instance of, hey, McLaren, SPM, is there something going there again? Both sides said no. This is the old thing from back in the day when we're looking for partners for the Indy 500 in 2017. Where is this all coming from? Um, I can't say whether that's in hindsight fully accurate or not. But I can say that in recent weeks, not many weeks, but in recent weeks, this month, July, have certainly been hearing more and more from from some absolutely dead solid sources. Talks are happening again. They're conversations. Now, this is the part where I, where I readily admit my jealousy. I wish I was at Mid-Ohio to be on the ground as Jim was to go and talk to various people in person. So you can, I realize you can call those same folks, but a lot of times you kind of need to see nuance, get the feeling in person, how they say things, how they don't say other things. So we'll admit I was jealous when Jim put up the story. I'm like, damn it. I wish I was there. Uh, cause I would have wanted to put it up two days before, of course, cause this is a competitive sport, even off the track, but nonetheless been hearing these things for a little while. And from some very credible sources, a couple of things to think about though. And I might end up writing about this in a silly season thing. Cause there's a lot of other angles going on with a lot of other things. We have the Michael Andretti angle. We have the McLaren slash Zach Brown United Autosports angle. So I'll overstate some things that are probably well known to you. Michael Andretti, Zach Brown partnered together in the in a Australian supercars team beyond what they did together at the 2017 Indy 500, partnering together McLaren to Andretti with Honda being there involved as well. We know that the Andretti Autosport team last year was helping from more of an infrastructure and logistics standpoint with Zach's United Autosports lmp2 sports car program when they came over here and did some imsa stuff so for those who didn't know or don't know there's a lot of collaboration entanglement of the of the good kind between michael and zach and their businesses one the ones that they own and also in the case of zach the one that he runs in mclaren so the thing we've been hearing for a while know this to be fact is there was a strong effort of, hey, McLaren and Andretti, IndyCar 2020, full-time, how do we make that happen? Well, 
We just had last weekend, not only Alexander Rossi confirmed with a new multi-year contract with Andretti Autosport, but Andretti returning with Honda. The things we've been hearing for a little while now is if this is going to happen, there's going to have to be someone bowing, bending a knee, uh, not just an extension of an olive branch, but seriously, there is a lot of repair that needs to happen between McLaren and Honda before Honda would ever consider making its engines available in a 2020 partnership between Andretti and McLaren. So had heard, and so again, that part I think everyone knows, the thing that we had heard from some pretty impeccable sources that there were indeed plans, concepts put together of how that might be achieved, how bridges might be unburned, if you want to put it that way, uh, restored, and some pretty big leaps were being considered. Uh, There's one very esteemed person who even offered to fly to Japan and on behalf of all sides, try and fix the past. Also something I would say that if McLaren was interested in doing, in theory, they could have tried to do that too. But there are some very serious thoughts and plans that I don't believe were ever acted on, but things put in place on how to make a new or say a continued example of what we saw in 2017, but in a full-time capacity between both sides. Didn't happen. Hasn't happened, obviously. Michael and team have recommitted to Honda, closing that door for McLaren. A little bit of a sidebar here. And again, I think I'm going to throw this into a story. I heard, don't know, can't vouch for its full accuracy. I can tell you that Uh, The person that I heard it from tends to be pretty spot on that the Andretti team re-signing with Honda was held until the last minute. If we look at a lot of the major announcements done by the team, you often see some sort of, at least to us in the media, you'll get an advance. Hey, tomorrow at noon, there's going to be a special announcement call in or you're invited to the thing not and here's the full story but just prompting you media to keep an eye out tomorrow at this time or whatever it is didn't get one of those for the the rossi signing or for the honda angle had heard that this was going to take place noon ish lunchtime on friday at mid ohio again nothing published saying that or sent out but just had heard that had been earmarked for the time Friday came and went. Then heard had been moved to Saturday at lunch. That is when it was ultimately done. Uh, had heard, again, heard, that the negotiations and discussions between Andretti Autosport and Chevy went until Saturday morning, if not late Saturday morning, and the signing of a contract with Honda might have been done, you know, moments before announcing it to the world had also heard, along with all this, these are all things that haven't happened, but they're just interesting things to consider in the greater picture of who might be talking with whom, uh, what could McLaren be doing or not doing, that one of the inquiries uh, from the Andretti team, if they had moved to 
Chevy, which would have very likely meant Alexander Rossi would not resign, knowing that he has been very loyal to Honda. And I believe Honda has also been very uh, forthright in their effort in trying to retain him. What that means financially, I can't say. But when I think of Rossi, I think of Honda. I don't think of someone who would just readily jump to a Penske Chevy or would even necessarily end up staying at a Andretti Chevy if that were the directions things went. Uh, have heard that trying to cover all bases, the Andretti team might have, anticipating if they did end up going with Chevy and would then potentially, or if not likely, lose Alexander Rossi, inquired about Scott Dixon's contractual availability for 2020 so again nothing there in terms of what has happened but just interesting to hear some of the plan b's some of the options going on and whatnot the fact is the easiest path of andretti plus mclaren adding one or two cars for full time next year had been explored there was hope that it could happen there with Hondas, the possibility of Andretti leaving Honda to go to Chevy to therefore enable this partnership with McLaren to happen was explored late, late, late. Ultimately, decision was made to stay with Honda. With Rossi, here we are. That then boots us into the, huh, okay. So then what happens potentially here with the McLaren angle if Andretti is not an option. And so that's where things start to get a little interesting. So in Jim's column, in the thing that we'd heard a little bit of, not saying a lot, but had heard some whispers of could Herta be a possibility if McLaren were to do something, uh, have heard, that, yeah, you know, this is a real thing. There is genuine interest. A part that I think, again, I apologize. I, apologize. I think Robin might have written about this. Not 100% sure. But I believe it's somewhat known that while Colton drives for Harding Steinbrenner Racing and George Steinbrenner the 15th is his good bud and co-owner and those two have come up from Indy Lights together, that in terms of who actually controls Colton's future, that that is on the Andretti side. Meaning, if Michael wants Colton to drive an Andretti Autosport car next year, he would. Uh, If he wanted Colton to be elsewhere, if, say, a great offer was extended from McLaren, ultimately, again, from what I have heard, and I do believe, and I think Robin might have touched on in print a little bit, as, a, as we understand, Colton and where he drives is dictated by the Andretti team. That's where this big ongoing Andretti, Zach Brown, United Autosports, McLaren tie-in collaboration connection in various ways. I think that is definitely just something to keep in the back of your mind. That if Zach and McLaren truly want Colton that the person they would need to get the approval of to make that happen is a friend and business partner compared to a separate entity that might not want to help them in any way, shape or form. So can't say if anything would happen there, 
just saying that they certainly have the right connections if that were to move forward. The two other things to keep in mind here, and I don't know if this was touched on too heavily, just repeating this yet again, I really do think I need to write about this now. So if we're talking about Aeroschmidt-Peterson Motorsports, well, interesting scenario. If a partnership with McLaren and Andretti could not work because Andretti has chosen to stay with Honda and Honda won't supply, what would be any different about Aero SPM? I have known this, but Quadruple confirmed it again today that uh, there is one more year left on their contract with Honda. Um, Keeping in mind that this core tenant of Honda, it's Honda Japan that refuses to do business with McLaren in any way, is the thing that struck down any relationship at Andretti. It's not readily apparent how something at Aero SPM would be any easier to make happen. Don't know all contractual details. Could there be who knows what kind of clauses? Again, no clue. But I would think that there would be some, there would have to be some pretty heavy lawyering involved (laughs) and some pretty big telescopes, magnifying everything to try and look at fine print to see if and what options are available. But knowing that we're talking about a Honda team, there would have to be a significant change somewhere for that to be possible at Aero SPM, where it was not possible at Andretti Autosport. Second thing of note is James Hinchcliffe, the beloved mayor, great friend of our show, also has one more year left on his contract with the team. And as we know, and I think has been common knowledge for many, many years, Honda Canada is part of his call it support package. They're big believers in the mayor and they spend money each year as part of that sponsorship package. If you have a television and happen to watch it in America, you also know, or North America, I should say, you also know that the mayor has a personal services contract with Honda itself doing the TV commercials that he does, et cetera, et cetera. If we're talking about someone who is Honda through and through, the mayor is certainly that guy. And so knowing that McLaren equals Chevy, period, and they are not planning on building their own engine and bringing it next year, the rules actually forbid such a thing right now while we're in the final year coming up in 2020 of the current engine formula, it's Chevy or nothing. And so for Aero SPM and McLaren, if anything were to happen, there would have to be a change in manufacturer. So that's where things get interesting. That's where the the story gets muddy. Not saying muddy inaccurate, just not straightforward by any means. Knowing that Hinch must be, I believe, I don't know the polls exactly, but must be IndyCar's most popular driver due to all the television stuff that he does, etc. This is someone who is absolutely a Honda guy 
And if these things were to happen between McLaren and SPM, and it would have to be a Chevy, where would that leave the mayor? Who, like the Honda contract, which has one more year to go, also has one more year to go. Just talking realities here, not saying this deal couldn't happen, assuming that there's an outclaw. Again, I don't know on the engine side, but if that hurdle were to be cleared, you would then have a second hurdle to consider, and that would be for James to continue with the support of Honda Canada and also being a representative of Honda on television and otherwise in maybe more than theory in reality, there might have to be a severing and forfeiting of those things to stay in the same team. Now using what would be their direct rival brand of engine supplier and obviously auto manufacturer that he is actively promoting the sales of against right now and trying to beat on track. So that's the intrigue here. Got that Honda contract for one more year, got Hinch under contract for one more year. How does that work out if McLaren and Aero SPM were to come to terms on something? So this is the area to really follow. And then there are some of the knock-on items. Um, my friend Felipe Nazar tested for the team yesterday. Went really well, really, really well. They wouldn't test a guy randomly in the middle of, again, potentially talking with a Formula One team wanting to come back to IndyCar about some sort of who knows what merger, technical, whatever it might end up being. It would be awful strange to test an XF1 driver right in the middle of all these conversations just randomly for no particular purpose would certainly leave questions of if Hinch, knowing his Honda ties, were to not go forward, were to accept whatever, a buyout, uh, whatever. Uh, if this thing were to happen, which would have to have Chevy engines, where would that leave him? Marcus Erickson, I've been hearing for a little while now, knowing that he has some good funding behind him, which although it's not fully represented on, or I believe at all really represented on his number seven Honda, uh, certainly a, a significant component is in his being an IndyCar, have been hearing for a little while now that he has been talking with a lot of teams and inquiring about possibilities elsewhere. Can't say whether that's because he's been told anything internally about possible future changes or if he's just gotten the feeling there might be a change or he might just want to look elsewhere independent of everything else. If nothing were to happen between McLaren and Aero SPM. So that could, where might that leave things in the Hinchcliffe, Herta, Nazar? Would it be adding two cars, one car? Would it just be adding the name and adding McLaren essentially rewriting uh, the two existing cars. Again, a <clears throat> lot of questions and lots of intrigue to consider as we head into a couple week break before we get going again in Pocono. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that Rossi guy, 
He's staying at Andretti. The silly season. It's going to be boring. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, so just to loop back here quickly, big thumbs up to Jim Aiello. Great job on getting this uh, story up and taking the lead on that. So that's what good reporters do. Big thumbs up to Jim. A lot of what he wrote jives with things I know to be in motion, discussions happening. Some of the things uh, we've known about for a while didn't necessarily consider them to be at the point, still not 100% there at the point of being ready for print, but some things can develop very quickly. Some things can happen very quickly. Also, there's a lot of other movement that could be happening here too as a result uh, of whether Marcus stays or goes. If he were to go and go to another team, does he displace somebody? Does he stay? Does he go somewhere else? Does he go to sports? Again, sports cars, IMSA, WEC. Who knows? I hope he stays. Uh, one thing we do know is we expect Felix Rosenquist to stay, and that's pretty awesome. So really happy for him, and that's what we get into here. Have a couple of laughs as well, a couple of new hashtags courtesy of him that we get to roll out. And then Oliver ask you as well, big things coming for that kid. Like many of the kids, which I mentioned in the Q&A section to close, more questions there as well. We've got two, three kids. I think they're going to be coming out of Indy Lights at the end of the year, ready to be an IndyCar. Most likely on the part-time aspect for a couple of them, maybe full-time for one. Where do they go? Where do they find a home? So that's a central topic we'll get into in Q&A. But first, it's our man from Sweden, Felix Rosenquist. Then Oliver Askew from Andretti Autosport Indy Lights, your championship leader. Then a bunch of Q&A from you that I answer as quickly as I can. And then you will hear the music fade, and we will say farewell to this episode. Brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, torontomotorsports.com, where MPP is your 15% off checkout code through August 5th. And also the amazing Bell Racing Helmets USA. Felix Rosenquist, good lord, man! You—I don't know what possessed you. Did you pound like seventeen Red Bulls before the race on Sunday? All I know is you went forward and forward and forward, and definitely let people know not only you were in the race, but you even did something to Will Power that like people don't do that to Will Power very often. Like that, uh, I don't know. How are you doing? How are you feeling? What's uh? What's your life like here a day or two after your best performance to date in a rookie IndyCar campaign? No, I'm get, doing well, man. That was uh, a long time coming for that first podium. It feels great to have that uh, knocked out. And, uh, uh, yeah, you know, I'm a bit tired after that race. No <laughs> no uh, cautions and uh, 90 laps around me to high. I think beat us up uh, beat us all but pretty good so uh yeah no awesome man really really fun really fun race and even like i watch it afterhand and it's as fun to watch as to drive you just like you need to try less hard just take it easy you know you'll get out of the car more refreshed again I, I, you need to just i blame you felix so got a lot of great questions as always and you've just been a blast every visit you've made this year to the week in indycar uh just because i think folks know that you're going to share some pretty honest or real stuff with them before we get to those questions uh first couple of them are certainly about the last uh 
last lap or two and some fun stuff with your Chip Ganassi Racing teammate, Scott Dixon. Let's talk about your overall strategy during the race because I'm still trying to figure out a way to write about it properly because I think that there was some brilliant decisions made team-wide on the 10 car in terms of race strategy and how to approach the event. I think that there was some phenomenal driving on your part. There was a lot of conversation during the broadcast early on. Look how much Felix is using push to pass. He's burning that up. Uh, Is that going to set him back later in the race? If you could share some insights about how, what I believe you guys were trying to do was use push to pass to cut through traffic as quickly as possible and or get ahead of competitors as quickly as possible so that you had as much free air, uh, as much free running as possible to maximize whether you were on blacks, on reds. Seemed like a really interesting strategy of passing to then have free road to gain advantage over others playing out in this three-stop strategy. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think, you know, we started on blacks, both me and Scott, and that was something that actually only our team uh, sort of gambled on before the start. Uh, I think that was the first wise decision, you know, that that, that definitely played out well. Uh, uh, having started a race, you know, yeah, our, our goal was to hang on the first lap because those blacks were like on ice the first couple of laps. And uh, I was pretty aggressive in the start, and I managed to keep my sixth position. Uh, I think Scott went up to seventh, so he was right behind me. Uh, And at the time, you know, you cannot really make up the whole strategy, but I felt I had great pace, and I was like, I'm I'm going forward here. And I think at that time, it, it feels like the team sort of made up that, okay, let's try a let's try a two stopper with Scott and a three stopper to Felix. Cause I was going forward and I was, as you say, I was spending push to pass just to not get behind those red tire cars. And, um, uh, yeah, just to get the train moving, you know, because once you get settled behind someone on, you know, no matter if he's going two seconds slower than you, you kind of get into his pace and that can, that can ruin your race, especially when you're on a three stopper. So, the whole point of my strategy was to go forward all the time, no matter what. And that was the instruction as well. Like, okay, let's do it, man. Let's, let's keep going, be aggressive. And, and that's what we did. And we had the pace for it. And, uh, I, I think it was a great strategy. You know, many, many people keep telling me like, why didn't you go on a two stopper? And I, I think that was, you know, that worked as well, obviously, because that, that's the strategy that won the race. Um, I think the main thing that, 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 made the two stopper better was the lapped cars that uh, effectively you know as you say i didn't have any push to pass saved you know i saved enough to eventually get around scott in the end but i didn't know there was going to be five four or five lapped cars uh, between us sure yeah that's something you have to keep in mind as well well i think this also it's not as if teams and drivers don't go into every race thinking, go forward, go forward. Obviously, that, that's the, <laughs> the basic premise of motor racing. But the, the hyper effort to do that, this, we're going to be crazy aggressive, especially in the first, well, just the opening stages of the race, but really 
early on, we're going to be super aggressive to try and clear any and everyone possible so that we can start to stretch our legs, not lose time, not lose tire effectiveness with aero wash or, you know, all the things that we know tends to happen. Yeah, I would be surprised if more teams don't start thinking about doing this on some of the upcoming road and street courses, probably Monterey, most of all of what's left. Uh, The two and three stop strategy, it's another thing that's fascinating, Felix, because there were two prevailing wisdoms. Should we do two stop? Should we do three throughout the, uh, the paddock for the event? And the Ganassi team ended up acing and winning both strategies. Obviously, you know, whether Scott finished first or you finished first, we ended up having a Ganassi one, two with you guys separated by zero time. I'm guessing that had to impress you as well, that you guys went in both directions and still ended up in the same place. Yeah, I think that that just shows how spot on we were that race, you know, on both on, on both pit stands, you know, from the, you know, the, our, our strategy guys just did all the right calls. We had really clean pit stops and, most of all, we didn't get stuck behind people on different tires. And that, as I said, that like if you watch the race afterhand, you actually realize even more. Uh, like I, I was watching my own on, on board, and I, I saw I was doing like uh, I was doing one minute nines, one minute tens when I was behind guys on used red tires. And then once I got past them, I actually went up in the high sixty sevens or one minute seven so it's a two second difference and you're you're pushing just as hard but just being in that wash you you feel you, you kind of get into the rhythm and if you're there for long enough you, you're eventually going to have the same bad tires as he has so uh i think that was you know we we really pulled it pulled it all together really well and you know on all sides of the team we just yeah, perfect uh, orchestra. Let's get into the questions here for you, Felix. The first one comes in from Corey Matthews. says, Felix, what were your thoughts during those last few laps? You had lap traffic to deal with. Some of them were helping. Some of them weren't. Uh, then you had how to race your teammate, Scott Dixon, knowing he is in the uh, championship point situation versus you going for your first win. What was going through your head? Because there must have been a lot. Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of things going on, and I, I, I liked it. You know, it was cool because you felt like this is, you know, this is why we do this. Uh, this is for real. You know, we're going for wins, and there's things happening. But at the same time, you know, I, I it was, it was a, it was a tricky scenario, especially with the lapped cars, uh, because, like, I spent a lot of time behind behind Chilton, and I think that's effectively what cost my race win. Yeah. Um, I think if I could have got past him sooner, uh, things might have looked different. But it's not only to get past the traffic, then they are actually attacking you again. You know, they are like, if you leave the door open, then they're going to try to get the position back. Um, and that was, that was really, like, I, I was pretty mad in the car because, you know, the, the racing I come from, if you're left behind, you have to give way. And, it's kind of hard to get used to something else. Like I know how it is uh, racing in America. I know the rules, but it's, I think it's more of a principle thing. If I was in that situation, I kind of would have given way, you know, like if it's not your day, you kind of don't want to mess up the leader's race. But uh, anyways, that's nothing I can, I can change. And, and I think 
yeah, there was a lot of anger in the car, obviously. And then once I got up to Scott, finally, I only had, you know, less than a lap left. And uh, so I knew I had to make my move quick and I didn't have any push to pass left. So I thought, you know, turn two is going to have to be the place. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, Scott is not going to make it easy for you, even being on, you know, two seconds slower lap, uh, two seconds slower tires. Um so I thought he kind of opened the door into two and then so I didn't really want to overtake him at first because I thought it was too far away. And then I showed myself and then he, he braked kind of early. I put in my nose and then just in the last moment he veered in and we had a bit of a contact. I, I have to go up on the grass and we touched a little bit. And then after that, I tried to get around him, but I just, it was just too that last section of the track is just too hard to overtake, but uh, he did a he did a brilliant job of keeping me behind, and it was just good to show you know the fans and and everyone that you know this is proper racing, even if we're teammates, you know we we go for it. As I tweeted out, I think on Sunday, we saw the birth of the Dixie and Rosie show, and that's the thing. The Chip Ganassi Racing Team has been dreaming of having since Dario had to retire at the end of 2013. And I know I, what I think it was Texas 2015 or something was the last one, two uh, with Dixon and Kanon at Texas. But the ability to get back to that one, two punch, that's the thing they've been craving. That's the reason they were interested in you for the first time years ago, have been trying to get you for years. And the fact that on Sunday uh, you were able to show that you could be that guy that is there giving them two shots to win, I know that there was a pretty big internal celebration. I mean, that's why they hired you. They believed you could. But until you see that in person, there's always that little bit of, waiting to exhale and so i think that was another great aspect of oh okay all right well this is dario told me this is who we we thought we were getting this is who we we wanted you know this is what we thought we were getting and look we were right we got it so there's a lot of happiness right there thomas gross asks next question which you've already answered by and large about turn two he does say though so that Dixie said he was going to apologize to you afterwards. Uh, did he? And how did that conversation go? Yeah, he actually came up and said, you know, sorry for, I think I only managed to say sorry. And then I said, you know, don't, don't even start. Like, I mean, he's, you know, I, I don't think there was any reason for him to say sorry. I mean, I, he raced hard. He, he didn't race me unfair. He didn't do anything wrong. And I think, I almost felt I was the aggressive one and but I think that shows, you know, we have respect for each other and we you know, we don't want to mess it up and we still wanna raise each other hard and uh yeah, it was just, you know, sometimes you cannot just you cannot judge what's gonna happen. You just you just send it in and then, you know the the split second reaction is going to decide how, how it turns out. But uh you know, I think Scott is a polite guy and he, he He's definitely, you know, a winner when he has the helmet on, but he's he's polite enough to, to go up and, and apologize after. But I don't think there was a reason for it. I think he did a great job. 
Another thing Dario and I discussed, and this is a question here from Jordan Darwin that focuses on it as well. He says, Felix, in hindsight, what should you have done differently on that last lap to pass Dixie? He says, great job on Sunday. And the thing Dario and I discussed was, for those of us who've been to Mid-Ohio a thousand times, seen a million races there, we know that for the most part, sending it in turn two doesn't always end up in the happiest way. But if you can get proper traction out of the keyhole and fire that down towards the end of the long straight, you're probably going to have a better chance of getting by knowing that Dixie was on very, very dead tires. Do you, th- again, though the, the point Dari and I both raised was it's not as if Felix, although you've been to mid Ohio, obviously it's not as if you have that mental database of remembering all the passing attempts you've seen over the years, which ones were on, which ones weren't. So was there any thought of, Hmm, maybe I shouldn't do this here. Maybe I should wait and hopefully, you know, put better power down and get them exiting the corner. Or was it was just a case of you haven't been there enough times to kind of know uh, some of the history to make that judgment from. I mean, I definitely try to calculate, you know, at the same time as just seeing what was going on. You know, I only had, as I said, like two corners to feel him out before yeah. I actually had to make a move. And, what I knew was once we passed turn five, like there's no way you're going to get in front of him. Like there's lit- it's literally impossible. And uh, so I knew either it's going to be turn two or turn four. And if if it's going to be in turn four, I need push to pass because he has pushed to pass left. So even if he has a good exit out of the keyhole, he's going to be able to run that push, push to pass down. And, you know, so I thought, you know, there seems to be an opportunity here. I'm going to take it because it might not come back. Uh, might might not have been the right thing. You know, maybe I could have got him into five, uh, into four, whatever. But, um, yeah, I, I think next time I would definitely try that. Um, but, yeah, I think in, in, the, in the moment, in the heat of the moment, that was, that was not a bad call, I would say, uh, considering with the push to pass and all. Jordan has another question, and I know these are – this can sometimes be a, a sensitive subject, but I've seen it come up a lot lately. And it's the, does Felix have a job next year? Does he have a contract? Is he fighting for a job in the 10 car? And nothing that I, I haven't heard anything to suggest you won't be back in the car next year. Does that sound about right? Yeah. I mean, our plan has always been uh, for this to be, uh, you know, this to be a rookie year and next year, um, uh, to be you know go for it year so uh yeah there's there's actually we haven't had any official way of communicating this and i think there's a lot some mixed uh mixed thoughts in the paddock um but yeah i i'll i'll, I'll leave it that way i mean it's not there's nothing official yet but um, i think you can count on me being back next year i love it all right uh, let's see, where else should we go for questions? Because you've got a bunch of good ones here. Let's go to Ryan Terpstra. He says, Felix, what has surprised you the most so far? Maybe something in IndyCar you expected might be one way that wasn't, or maybe even something off track here in your first year living in America, full-time being a race car driver. So anything that's really continues to surprise you on or off the track? I, I I keep getting surprised how diff- different every weekend is, and how different 
like what a different skill set you need compared to what you need from the racing I come from. And I, I felt like I had a huge database coming into IndyCar of previous racing and that I would be prepared for anything except maybe the ovals, but, uh, you know, for road courses at least. But it always seems like I feel so much as a rookie because, like every week, every weekend we 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 go somewhere. It's a different tire. It's a different. It's a new track. It's a bumpy track. It's a smooth track. It's a. It, it's just hard to explain how different you have to drive every time you're in the car, and it's hard to build up any kind of momentum. Like okay, now we had a good weekend in Mid Ohio, and which was for sure you know groundbreaking for me, but. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, I'll, I'll be good at uh, at Pocono, you know, uh, and yeah, that that keeps surprising me. Even you know, a couple of races in, it, it keeps surprising me how hard you have to fight and how hard you you have to improvise every weekend. Not only driving the car, but also strategy. Uh, yeah, just it, it's just not making our lives easy. Let's put it that way. I thought you were going to say you were surprised at how sexy and amazing the reporters were. Then I was going to say thank you. But, you know, I guess that was the other angle. You could take things there, Rosenquist, whatever. Um, so piggybacking on your comment here, Robbie Berggren says, Felix, have you ever been in a wilder race than the one on Sunday? And if so, please share. I mean, on an, on an emotional level, no. I mean, that was definitely the ultimate stress test. Um, it was a lot on the line and it was, you know, my fighting for my first podium and win. And it was all that craziness with lapped cars on the last lap. You know, it's like a Hollywood uh, script. Yeah. But at the same time, I, I think I've been in crazy races where, you know, there's just a lot of crashes and nasty stuff. Like Spa 24 hours last year was really... Like whenever I was on track, I could just, you could see cars chopped in half and it was just really nasty. It was, it was not fun in the same way. It was just uh, too dramatic and too many crazy things like cars flying, tires flying and crazy weather and all that. Um, so yeah, I prefer, I prefer uh, Sunday's kind of crazy in that sense. Next question is from Dean Ackerman, and I don't know if you're aware of the very specific Indy 500 superstition of the color green being a bad, bad thing. Uh, Dean says, hi, Felix. Some drivers are a bit superstitious. So with your first IndyCar podium and near victory coming while your car was sporting the Clover Network's green and black colors, any chance you will want that livery to reappear at any future tracks in 2019? Well, it, it, it won't. We, we won't have the Clover deal for any other races. That's a one-off only for Mid-Ohio. Uh, but yeah, it, it was it was cool. I think many people liked the uh, delivery. And uh, I'm not superstitious, so I, I guess that's good. I, I even thought it would bring some luck with the Clover there. <laughs> and, see, uh, good man. That's the way you should take yeah. it. Yeah, and I try to see it positive, you know, whenever there's a color change and that's something you kind of get used to but for the most of the part i'm with the entity data color of the, the blue car and that will that will be back for next week and so um i, I think that one is nice as well so I, I don't really mind you know as long as it's quick <laughs> the very first team owner i worked for 
in motor racing period back in 1986 in the uh the SCCA Pro Racing Super V series which was I guess kind of the equivalent of say Pro Mazda back in the day um a really smart guy very dry wit I was 15 or 16 at the time so I didn't get it it took a little while but I remember he told me one night while I was working on the car somehow superstitions had come up and he said you know it's unlucky to be superstitious and i just kind of looked at him and didn't get it then when i got a little bit older i'm like that's a brilliant and one of the funniest things i've ever heard so uh i'm glad it's you true, are though I, yeah. I have to agree <laughs> i'm glad I you're not superstitious all my superstitions like I, I normally have an espresso before the race and like this race i had a actually made a cold espresso because it was warm outside Smart. and then that became lucky, you know. But then again, if you keep drinking cold espresso, how do you know if, like, yeah, I, I think it's not good to get into all that. I uh, also also had one black and one white sock this time because I could. I had a. I, I kind of I was kind of in a rush to get the get dressed for the race, and then I realized like my toe was sticking out of the sock, <laughs> so I had to put on a black one, just like in a rush. Uh, so yeah, you know. Rosenquist's secret to success, biracial <laughs> socks. I mean, right there, man. We, you know, your next championship, we just figured it out. You just got to wear those forever. Now, do you do sugar or anything in your espresso, or do you do you have that tough European stomach that can just take it straight? Just straight, man. Straight. <sighs> I, I, I don't know how you, like, every, every year I'd go to cover Le Mans, I'm thinking coffee, but no, it's espresso is pretty much it. And it would just be this, you know, I may as well drink a bottle of acid that just has a lot of caffeine in it. And yeah, uh, I guess I'm made from try Swedish coffee. It's basically it's a, not as strong as espresso, but it's almost the same intensity. And then you drink like a full cup of it. Like oh. when, when you visit like a construction site or something and they give you like the lunch break, <laughs> we call it fox piss. Fox like, piss. It, it, yes. It keeps you awake for, all, for the rest of the day for sure. Oh, you've just given me my hashtag for the episode too. Hashtag fox piss. Oh, this is the best. <laughs> I think uh, I'm hoping I'm going to be back for Portland, if not Portland, certainly my home race at uh, at Monterey. But you, we might have to make this a thing where you show me how to make fox piss because that sounds like just something I have to have. We should do that. Yeah, definitely. All right. Let's go to our next question from our pal Vincent. He says, Felix, are any of your F1 driver friends who are in the middle of the grid there or even the back, you know, tail end of the F1 grid, they ever reach out and are they the least bit curious about uh, trying IndyCar or what you're experiencing here in IndyCar since – you're standing on podiums, and maybe they aren't. Um, oh, you mean you mean the guys that are in IndyCar, or in no? Uh, any of your friends that you've raced with in the past, or just friends you have that are now in F1, but aren't ah, necessarily okay. in front-running teams, who are probably saying, "All right, I just drove my balls off and finished 14th in Germany, ah, but yeah. hey, Felix is on the podium. I wonder, hmm, how are things over there?" I think. I feel there's a lot of curiosity uh, from, you know, friends and just drivers in general, you know, how, how life is here, how, how it is to race. And I, I think everyone kind of jealous uh, when I made a move because they know it's like hardcore racing over here. Uh, then it's obviously dif- different. And I think that's what keeping most 
of us from coming here because it's that fear of, you know, am I going to be good here? Am I going to be able to acclimatize and adapt to to the American racing culture? And, and it, it, it is very different and it's not easy. Like, I'll, I'll challenge anyone to come here and, you know, win races immediately. It, it, it's tough. Um, I, and I think that fear is sort of what drives most most drivers that have an opportunity to, to come here. And I, I hope that's going to change. I mean, me and Mark is being here now and, you know, ho- hopefully there's, there'll be a bunch more coming over soon. I think it's, it's, it's also good for, you know, showing, uh, you know, showing, showing the folks back home, how, how good IndyCar is, because I think at least from the Swedish side, like all the fans back home in Sweden, they learned so much about IndyCar. Like in the beginning, they're like, Oh, why is it, safety car now why you know no one understood anything and they just found it confusing and now everyone is so hooked like every race they're they're really on it and they're all the live timing and live streams and everything like they they get used to it and they love it actually so this is just a little fact i don't know if it's of interest maybe to our, our mutual pal uh matthias Pearson and whatnot but with your inclusion in the indycar series and marcus erickson's just looking here at the geographic stats on uh, the little old marshall pruitt podcast sweden's number five and went from being number zero uh you know not even on the list to in terms of of geometric listeners and whatnot uh united states no surprise uh number one the uk is behind in number two then Canada, Australia, and Sweden. So um, I realize, you know, if you guys were number one, that'd be really amazing. But nonetheless, the inclusion of two Swedes in IndyCar has genuinely been reflected in uh, a lot of new Swedish listeners wanting to come in and see what's happening. So definitely seeing that on this end. I think the other point, too, you raise about curiosity, Felix, among those in F1 or, you know, on the European open wheel ladder, considering where should they go, been interesting to see how things have played out over here and you talk about that fear if we say max chilton obviously max while in f1 not with a great team was never going to be able to show his true talent didn't really know what he had to offer came here with ganassi had some good showings definitely on ovals surprisingly is where he he demonstrated the most aptitude but really hasn't stood out too heavily Rossi, right? Yeah. Alexander Rossi, same thing in F1. Bad team, was never going to show his stuff, didn't know what we would be getting. Holy crap. <laughs> this yeah. is this is definitely Formula One's loss. This guy is amazing. This year, between you and Marcus, obviously, I know you're not coming from F1, but still, you could easily be in F1. But Marcus, uh, obviously, five years with Sauber, had some good showing, still not exactly sure where he would fall. Obviously, the the Aeroschmidt-Peterson Motorsports team, not at the same level as your Chip Ganassi program, but Marcus has shown some great potential but still struggled. You, on the other hand, are certainly showing like, all right, this kid's for real. So I like the fact that it isn't just a, hey, if you're having struggles in Europe and F1 or whatever, come to IndyCar. It'll be easy. You'll be running up front. We're still seeing that for some folks. No. <laughs> trust yeah, me I, you're not you're I not finding easy here yeah i think that's what starts to prove now like you you don't come here and just win races and 
work work it as a retirement plan you know it's uh i think we had a couple like i think barkello went here after formula one and some others and yep. you know it's i mean he, he, even rossi like we saw how hard he had to to work like the first year and and you know success of like eventually he he became really really good but it wasn't easy for him either and yeah, I think I think that's pretty cool that you actually because in most forms of racing you can actually like if you're quick you can normally make it work anywhere, but IndyCar just seems like you have to give it good couple of races before you can even fight for wins. Great question here, Vincent. Thanks for cracking this one open. Let's go to Rob Ball. He says, Felix, with having a veteran teammate in Scott, veterans in other ways, saying really, really old, um, who's basically seen it all, what attributes do you feel uh, you have that maybe bring a fresh look to the team in terms of maybe setup or just how they operate as a whole? So it's another great one, right? Because you want to come in, be immediately effective, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure the team wants to get you kind of working in their methodology, but have you also seen them be receptive to you throwing new ideas their way? I definitely think so. In the beginning, uh, I remember when I did my first test uh, last year at Barber, uh, I remember there was some talks going on about uh, the caster and how the steering felt and all that. And I think I had some good input there that they were like, oh, we never heard this before. Uh, that was kind of interesting. See, I uh, knew Dixon then, was slacking. See, proof right here. <laughs> Dixon's lazy. Yeah, he needs more caster if you want to go quicker, but he just doesn't go to the gym. <laughs> uh, that's, not, that's not really true. Shots but, fired. Uh, Hashtag Dixon doesn't go to the gym, <laughs> says Felix Rosenquist, now former Chip Nasty racing helped. driver. Uh no, but I think then, obviously, in the beginning there, I had a good run. And I think when you have a good run, you, you can you have more things to say and you, you gain respect among the engineers and the team, which is not hard, not easy earned in, in Chip Ganesi Racing. You know, if you look at their history, they, they won everything. And it's not like you're going to come in and they'd be like, oh, you're... You're the god from Sweden. It's it's like they're, huh, who are you? <laughs> like show us something new. And uh but I think the last couple of rounds uh I've actually contributed more and especially like Toronto, Mid Ohio, it felt like for the first time like maybe my direction of setup was a bit better for, for qualifying and so on and and it's it's so it's nice to see you know when when I can contribute because it's not easy as I said with you know with Chris Simmons and Scott Dixon on the other side um, you know they they are pretty good and they they know how to dial in a car and it's a good good sign when when you're doing something better than them you know um, so yeah I think the the last couple of weeks have been different in that sense that I've actually been a bit more confident in how i want things and i think that's the way i need to go i love it i love it all right two more questions for you my man the next one's from a different vincent vincent 1701 that's a strange last name vincent uh he says for felix in america it's been said that quote rubbing is racing he says do you see this as true uh, or do you believe that all racing has some amount of rubbing and and making contact involved 
Well, I certainly haven't been rubbing as much as uh, before I came to IndyCar. It's, uh, <laughs> maybe Formula E, but it was more more crashing than rubbing, I think. But uh, I didn't want to say that, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I think those two, like my last couple of years has been a lot of contact in, in racing. And uh, I think IndyCar has a good balance of it because the cars are so strong that you can... You can have a good hit and still continue, which is, I mean, for, I don't know if it's for the better or the worse, uh, but it definitely saves a lot of cars during the race and it, it creates a lot of good battles that otherwise would have been, you know, DNFs or, you know, body kit flying all over the place. And I, I really like it. it. Sometimes it's, you know, someone someone puts his elbows out and goes past you in maybe not the nicest way but then the next time when you're quick you can actually do the same and it, it works for you so whoever's quick on the day actually has a good chance of you know using his muscles to to go go by and that's the thing which i think you give the impression just by doing nothing just by just standing there look at the nice boy the little blonde angel with the smile he's just must be the sweetest thing in the world i'm like no i've seen him in i've seen him in gt cars i've seen him in you name it no felix is not afraid to trade paint my friends and so again i think visually folks might look at you and say well he doesn't look mean he must be a sweetheart he is outside the car as you said you're not afraid to get those elbows up inside the car i think it just fits the style of driving here to your willingness to do that and we spoke about max chilton a little while ago max that's not a huge part of his driving personality uh, his just independent personality as a human being yeah you know he can get pretty feisty i haven't seen that manifest as much as it should behind the wheel sometimes what would really benefit him from not being a jerk and knocking people off track, but just the willingness to trade paint a little bit, I think would benefit him. But it is good to know that you have that as your teammate learned uh, on the last lap on Sunday that, Hey man, uh, nope, I'm not going to play it safe. If we got something really good to go after here. So I love that aspect as well. Let's go to uh, our last question here. Felix comes in from Bob Fay. It says, obviously, you're going to be in the United States for the foreseeable future. So I'm just wondering how you're doing with the transition of living here in the U.S. Any things that you've continued to love more? Any complaints? Uh, and then after that, I, I'm going to ask you about your girlfriend, too. Okay. Uh, I mean, I'm actually living in Monaco still. Uh, so I'm not living in the U.S. full time. Uh, but I'll probably spend, you know, a good couple of months here this year. So I've, like all my you know time between the races and tests and all that has been in indianapolis and I, as i have an apartment here actually the same building as marcus yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, well i i think you know in the beginning it's very different the roads are bumpier the 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 meals are normally bigger uh yeah it's like now I know why they're so fat, says Rosenquist. Yes, it's true. You can't argue that no, at all. It's like it, you, can ne you can never order too little food. I think that's the thing. <laughs> uh, but otherwise, you know, it, it's a, I like the way of living here. I think some people 
has a really hard time getting used to U.S. because it's just so different to oh, Europe. Yeah. Uh, and in the beginning, I was a bit like that, but and now I actually kind of like it, and I I like spending my time here. And it's when you find your way through it, it's it's really convenient, and and the people are pretty chill too. And that that that's probably the biggest part, you know. Like if, if you spend a day at the shop with the boys, they're they're just really nice people and they're always willing to take the time to talk to you and you know i think i've been invited for dinner by like almost half the team and that's something that hasn't happened before uh, in my career so yeah it's, it's really it's a really kind people and i think that that makes makes it a lot easier i love that the, the other trick too is when you're going to order meals ask for the kids menu see that might be the trick where <laughs> you know children's servings might be a little bit better what about your girlfriend? Has she been spending time with you here as well? And how often do you have to tell Robin Miller to go away? Because <laughs> that's another problem. Because any driver with an attractive girlfriend or wife, it's pretty much guaranteed Robin's going to be there. So, Felix, still has uh, to talk. And please introduce that's us. Still has to talk, Robin. That's <laughs> to say it's pretty smooth. Pretty smooth with the girls. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. So my my girlfriend, uh, she actually helps the team with uh, with like media stuff. Uh, so she doesn't work like for me, but she works uh, with the team and obviously helps me with things during the weekends. Uh, but mostly off off track uh, off the weekends. And uh, yeah. So so she's managed to to find herself, you know, spending a lot of time in the U.S. as well. And I think that's been that part has been very easy in, in the U.S., like, uh, you know, introducing my girlfriend to the team. Uh, that's something, like, I would never do in, in Europe. Like, you know, girlfriends are, like, hated in, <laughs> in European racing and just, like, keep keep it away. And uh, and here it's been the opposite. You know, everyone's like, oh, how can we how can we help you guys? How can we help Caroline, my girlfriend, to to, to have an easier time here? Because they understand that, with doing this move to the U.S. Uh, and doing IndyCar, she's obviously involved in the picture as well. And that's been very, very easy, uh, surprisingly easy. I love to hear it. Well, Felix, happy for you. Uh, what what took place on Sunday might have been a surprise for some. For those who have followed your career for a while, it was never a question of if but when and definitely hoping that this story starts to become more of the the norm and the usual for you indycar is going to be better for it and that ganassi team of yours i think is just going to be really really hoping that more of these kind of one-two punches with you and dixon being able to pose a really united front competitively everything they're hoping for so happy for you to deliver on that last weekend and have a sneaking suspicion it's not going to be the only time yeah, we'll see. We'll see, he says, brimming with confidence. Nope, that's it. I'm done. I got my one podium. I'm finished. All right, brother. Yeah. Well, I know you have like uh, other things to do. Thanks, as always, for spending some time here with my listeners, and I look forward to seeing you here very soon. Good time, man. Thanks for having me. Oliver Askew, it's awesome to have you back here on the week in IndyCar, and I tell you, man, at the rate things are going for you in this Indy Light season, we really are going to be having you on pretty quick. 
on the proper week in IndyCar, not as an Indy Lights guy, but, you know, you're sure giving us the, the feeling and the hints. You're going to be an IndyCar driver pretty soon. How you doing? I'm doing good, and it's always great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And, um, yeah, that's that's obviously the goal. That's been the goal for the past past couple of years to be in uh, IndyCar next year. So, um, so far, so good. Well, let's jump right into things coming off of yet another successful weekend for you. Owning Mid-Ohio, always a great event to do that, knowing that calendar-wise, Mid-Ohio tends to be a place where a lot of team owners, drivers, a lot of news tends to happen on the IndyCar front. Obviously, your, I guess we can't call him your teammate, just one step up, Alexander Rossi confirmed he'll be returning to Andretti Autosport for a good while. You're in a place, Oliver, where with a pretty healthy lead in the championship, not saying it's over or done, but some things would have to go rather strange for things to fall out of your hands here championship-wise. You're obviously now looking to the future, and so we've got a couple questions that kick off and point in that general direction. First one comes in from our pal Jordan Darwin, who says, Oliver, with your success in Indy Lights and the seemingly full roster at Andretti Autosport and IndyCar, do you look elsewhere? For IndyCar rides in 2020, uh, have you maybe spoken to Ryan Hunter Ray about, you know, maybe rocking chairs are more comfortable, go fishing full time, you know, uh, just spend the next couple years on a boat, maybe free up the old 28 DHL Honda. Uh, kidding aside, though, how do you approach this, Oliver, knowing that seats and availability might not be staring you in the face as much as you would like? Yeah, it's a really good question, and um, in all honesty, um, I'm just worried about doing my job right now and, and winning this championship, and um, and then we'll be in a better position to have those kinds of discussions. Um, I think right now um, I have some really great people around me working on on the business end of things, and um, with Spire Sports Entertainment and my support group back home in Jupiter, Florida, we have uh, you know hopefully we'll be we'll be in a good position next year to um, you know be competitive in IndyCar. So. I'm not too worried about that at the moment. Like I said, uh, my main focus is to is to win the million dollar check at the end of the year, and then um, and then we can have those discussions. So um, it's obviously very exciting. Um, you know, if you were to tell me three years ago that we'd be in this position, um, like you said, it's it's not over yet. You know, um, I can't can't get too complacent, but um, we're in a good position for sure. The next question from Jay Panther bit of a follow-up to the first but it's certainly something you have to think about uh looking at some of the recent trends he said would you take a partial season in indycar next year if one is available and no full-time seats are open or could you opt for another season in indy lights and hope for a full season ride in 2021 that does again raise a very strong thing you have to think about realize you have a championship you're pursuing all the kind of normal things you just said but there's also been a trend where Indy Lights champions have, in some cases, uh, or those just graduating in general, might not have that full-time seat in front of them. It's a bit of a mental thing, right, of possibly not having everything you want. Have you prepared yourself for that, for that possibility? Have you cracked that door open of dealing with it, if that is, ends up being a reality? Yeah, sure. And I think that's a good question as well. And I think, you know, IndyCar experience is invaluable and, you know, whether it's, whether it's three or four races, um, you know, it's better, better than nothing. And I, I think it's better than, than doing another, um, uh, year in, in Indy lights in my opinion. So, 
Um, I think I've, I've shown this year that, that I have the speed and, and consistency and, and the racecraft to, to move up. And, um, that would, that would be the goal to, um, obviously the IndyCar series right now is extremely competitive and that's, um, that's where I want to be next year. It's, um, you know, by no means is it going to be easy. Um, but that's, that's where I want to be to continue my growth as a driver. Robbie Bergren asks something that's the most pressing item. It says, Oliver, what are you doing to prepare for your first IndyCar test with the Chip Ganassi racing team? He says, have they given you a test list of things they want you to work on? Do you ask others who have done young driver tests uh, what you might expect? So give us a little bit of insight because we are, what, about one week away from you heading out my way to Portland and climbing into a CGR Honda IndyCar. Yes, it's it's very exciting. Um, I, I knew I knew about uh, the situation a, a couple of days before um, the Mid Ohio weekend, and it was it was hard not to not to you know keep that in the back of my mind. But um, <laughs> it was um, it was important for me to focus on the task at hand and and then worry about that this week. Um, I'm going to be to answer the question. I'm going to be going over to uh, to the shop for the first time tomorrow on Wednesday um, to you know to go over all those things. You know, we have to get the seat fit done make sure I'm comfortable in the car and then we can, then we can talk about, you know, the run plans and um, I, have, I have a bunch of buttons on the steering wheel now. So I need, I need to figure that one out and, um, and, you know, get, get it, look at as much onboard and, and data as I can to, um, you know, understand how the car needs to be driven. So I believe you're currently at Andretti Autosport while we're speaking here. Are they fitting you for some kind of, you know, spy cam glasses or something, some kind of Wi-Fi video transmission for when you're pulling open drawers and looking for all the secrets at Chip Ganassi Racing? All kidding aside, though, that has to be a thing, right, Oliver? I mean, you're driving for Andretti Autosport uh, and Indy Lights, amazing IndyCar team, you have gotten the invite to do your first IndyCar test with one of their primary rivals. I don't want to so much ask how you go about that, but does do either side give you any coaching or, hey, happy you're doing it over the, you know, coming in here to do this, but let's try and, you know, maintain some sensible lines of, of demarcation um, when you're, you know, crossing boundaries from one rival to another. Yeah, of course. Uh, that's, that's part of the deal, right? There's, there won't be any sharing of any information. Um, it's more of just the experience that I can take in, um, that will, you know, help me in the future, future situations. But, um, I think I'm going to be giving either Colton Hurd or Patricio Ward a call here in a bit to, you know, ask them a couple of questions about, um, you know, their transition from Indy lights to the Indy car. Um, I think that will be extremely helpful for me in my, my first couple laps and, um, yeah, I'm, like you said, I'm here at Andretti Autosport right now. Um, after the weekend, going over all the all the um, the post uh, post event um, information that we that we brought from Mid Ohio to make the car better in the future. So, um, still still on the on the Indy Lights program right now, but uh, we're going to get back and um, start my start my IndyCar campaign tomorrow. It's super exciting. Is there any sense of come on, man? Knowing that you're going to be doing your maiden indy tart indy car test at portland alongside your primary indy light rival this year (laughs) (laughs) renas vk who will be in an ed carbon racing chevy uh you know and uh, he's probably from the kid yeah he's probably feeling the same thing like come on man really (laughs) of all the places in the world um you the two of you though i love the fight that you've had this year i mean it's pretty clear 
the Andretti Autosport team as a whole has been really, really razor sharp in terms of competition. And uh, Renus, there are times where I would say they have envied the competitiveness of the uh, Andretti program, but uh, it's not necessarily a thing, but it does seem like the two of you could have a, a nice long rivalry, provided both of you get into IndyCar and you know build on the careers I believe you should have for quite some time. Yeah, I think so, and, and not many people uh, know that we actually began began racing each other in 2015 and 2016 um, when I was racing in Europe on on his turf, um, and so we we've been you know competing against each other wheel to wheel for about four years now, and um, you know it's it's a healthy rival rivalry. Obviously, we made some made some contact earlier in the year, but um, you know I think I think we both have have a healthy respect for each other and um and we look forward to to the battles um battles in the future and uh yeah it, it's going to be it's going to be good to compare ourselves um in portland next week um you know both coming from similar experience for sure last question on the the testing front chip ganassi racing managing director mike hall has long been a fan supporter and serious advocate of young talent more often than not young american talent and this goes back decades and decades i know he has been very high on you for quite some time uh back team usa scholarship days and such you share any insights about that oliver because i'm fairly well convinced that without mike hull being a very strong supporter, again, just remotely, you know, not even a part of your team, but just as a senior figure in the IndyCar paddock, having a very keen eye for talent, really liking what he's seen with you. I have to believe Mike was a significant player in making sure that you were invited to do your first test with them. Yeah, I believe so. Um, he's he's a fantastic human being, and um, I'm very thankful to have him in my corner and, and you know going to bat for me for for these opportunities. And um, obviously, with massive amount of experience and uh, in the IndyCar paddock, um, I think he's been with with Chip since 1992 or something like that. So he, he he's he's seen a lot, and um, I'm looking forward to to learning as much as I can from him um, and that experience next week. And um, yeah, we you can go back to 2000 uh, at the end of 2016. I met him going through the Team USA scholarship, and and we've developed a relationship ever since. So, um, yeah, fantastic guy, and um, very thankful for for the opportunity. And that's maybe a learning point for any young, whether it's road to indie drivers or those who are just maybe hoping of one day getting on to the road to indie. Yes. Oliver Askew can drive a race car with speed and competence. He can do many things that are wonderful behind the wheel. It's the relationship building in this instance added to what you've demonstrated in the car that's opened this door because there are many fast drivers. Not all of them can say, hey, I've made a friendship or struck up some sort of uh, relationship with a person here, and it has developed into something that has actually helped me advance my career I know that isn't something that you've done saying, aha, I'm going to make this acquaintance and then twist it and develop it into something in the future. It's just happened organically. But the point being, you haven't just solely focused on being a robotic race car driver. You've also realized that getting to know people and build true relationships with them, that's key 
maybe share a little bit about that because I don't know if every young driver realizes it's the person-to-person stuff that can matter as much as how many checkered flags you take home. Yeah, and I, I had to learn this very early on because I didn't come from you know a lot of family backing to you know get myself to this position where we are now, and I've, I've had to rely on 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 many different kinds of relationships and, and different sponsors to to get to this point. And um, you know, I, I I learned a lot actually from from Jeremy Shaw and, and that Team USA scholarship um, program in 2016, um, where you know he he made sure that we were you know, keeping, keeping him informed while we're in, in, in England and, and keeping those relationships going. And, and Jeremy introduced me to so many different people and, and, and the road to Indy paddock and Indy car paddock. And I've just been kind of nurturing those relationships over the past three years. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a different day and age now, you know, you, like you said, it's uh, you can't just be fast on track. You need to be able to present yourself off the track and, um, represent your sponsors and, and supporters as well. It's, it's it's probably just as important as being quick on track. Jeremy Shaw, patron saint of American Junior Open Wheel Racing. Let's go to some more questions for you, Oliver. This next one is from Kyle Krause, who says, what did you learn most oh, nice. during your karting career that has helped you to or helped you to apply your success in progression throughout the road to Indy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, I think... Um, I think a lot of my racecraft and, and natural ability has has come from the karting days. Um, obviously, I was, you know, racing naturally when uh, nationally when when I was um, 11 or 12 years old, and 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 through through until about 2016 when I when I started my road to road to Indy career. Um, and so I think I think those early years definitely prepared me um, prepared me for for my my car racing career and. Um, you know, a lot of it's trial and error. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've been in many different situations, um, many difficult situations. And, you know, I've, I've, I've looked, I look back at those days and, um, I, I can, you know, remember, you know, which, um, you know, if I, what kind of mistakes I made and how I got past those hard times and all the adversity. And, um, you know, I, it's, I, I owe a lot to, to my karting career and then the people who, who supported me back then, um, I think seat time too is, is very important. And, um, a lot of, a lot of parents overlook that. Um, it's very important to be, to be in the cart, you know, almost every single weekend I spent summers at Ocala Grand Prix when I was younger, um, you know, racing and racing every weekend and and putting in, you know, 500 laps every weekend. It's, it's very important. Um, so Kyle actually, (laughs) actually managed that team earlier, um, in, in the early years. So, uh, many thanks to, thanks to him for the question and for the opportunity early, early on. We have another carding question here from Sean Kennedy. This is Oliver, you're known as an avid carter and he wonders why is it, do you think that more drivers do not use carding, uh, I guess, more top level open wheel drivers? Why don't they use carding as a cross training tool or compete in national events in the off season? He says, do you think it's a risk of injury or maybe looking slow compared to the uh, the regular full-time national drivers. He also says, good to know that another tall guy can wheel a cart. Yeah. Yeah, I'm uh I'm I'm getting I'm, I'm a little bit too tall right now to to compete in in the top level of of karting, especially with the soft tires. It's uh my center of gravity isn't on my side at the moment, so <laughs> um it's still possible though. Um but yeah, um uh, for in, in my position, at least, um, 
it's not ideal for me to race during the season because obviously there is that risk of energy uh, injury. Um, the risk versus reward um, isn't isn't fantastic. So, um, but I I do you know practice in a go kart during during the season. Um, you know, especially when we have long breaks, uh, it's very important for for me to stay sharp in that way. And um, I might do a couple of races in the off season. We'll see. I, I still um, love to spend spend time around that scene and and to see the you know the younger drivers come up and um, you know give them any tips that I can. It's 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 always good to give back. And um, you know, I, I think I think more professional drivers should should spend time in a go kart for sure. It's um, it's probably the the a shifter car at least is probably the closest thing to an indie car. So, um, as far as, you know, the, the rate of speed of, of, that the corners are coming at you and then, and the G forces and the, the physicality of it is, is very difficult. So. Mm, I love it. All right. Two more questions for you, Oliver. Uh, we're going to go with Josette Torres who says, Oliver, has your freedom 100 wins sunk in yet? <laughs> you know, I, I, I think about that a lot. It's, um, I wish I could go back and, and relive that weekend because it was, um, the best weekend of my life by far, you know, it's nothing compared to that. It was, um, it was incredible to, you know, not, not just the race, but the days after that to, you know, walk around the city and, and, and be recognized, uh, as the freedom 100 winner and, and to go through the parade. And, um, you know, I really got to see that the passion that Indianapolis has for, um, the speedway and IndyCar, and um, it's um, I think it has sunk in at this point, um, but maybe it'll sink in a little bit more after the season when when I can um, hopefully you know win win the championship and and look back at it all and soak it all in. Well, the fact that you put the trophy on a gold chain and wore it around your neck and had a shirt made that said "I won the Freedom 100" that might have helped people know that what you achieved. But still, it's a good play. I like that. All right. <laughs> Last question for you here. It's a, I saved it for last just because it's an interesting one. And honestly, yeah. I guess I hadn't really learned this part. This comes in from the Ukraine from Alexei Hrushko, who says, Oliver, I noticed that you de facto started your single-seater career from the Formula Master Series in China. Why China? And, yeah, I can't ask it any better than that. That's a, it's a buzz. And I had to go look it up. I'm like, well, I'll be darned. Alexi, you're yeah. teaching me stuff here. So this is a strange yeah, one. Tell us the story, man. That. Yeah. Yeah. So that was uh, that was my first race in a car. That was in 2015. I ran two weekends there, and there were three races each weekend. Um, and there were the two final weekends of the championship. So, um, yeah, I had the opportunity to go there through Ingo Matter and Absolute Racing. Um, they still run that team there. They're, they're very successful in, in Asia and, um, and GT car racing and, and the Asian Formula 3 championship. And, um, yeah, they, they invited me over and for, for a couple of races and that was my, my very first experience. So again, thrown in the deep end and, and had to make, had to make the most out of it. Um, it was a fantastic opportunity and, uh, you know, to, to race on, on a formula one circuit, like, like Shanghai. And then we also, uh, we raced in zoo high next to Hong Kong. Um, my, my first time in Asia as well. So it was a fantastic experience and, and, uh, you know, something that kind of kicked off my, my open wheel campaign. What was the non-racing experience like for you? Because it's not as if you're old now, but you certainly were young, in 2015 was it where's a mcdonald's i want to eat something familiar did you dive into the local cuisine and customs what was the experience like 
Well, I, I love to, to travel and, um, and, you know, see, see as much of the world as I can. And obviously Asia is, is very different to the United States and, um, and, and some, some, some good ways as well. Um, you know, the, the people are very friendly, they, but they don't speak any English. So that was weird, isn't it? You go to other countries yeah. and English isn't their native language. Right. Um, so I had to use the translate app on my phone a lot. And, uh, I don't think they've in some areas, I don't think they, um, have ever seen a tall blonde kid before. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was very cool. Um, you know, I got to see, I got to spend a lot of time in Shanghai, which, which is, uh, you know, a melting pot of, of different cultures. And, um, the food was very different there too, which, which I also, um, enjoy, but, you know, just like, just like many other races, you know, it's more, you know, back and forth from the hotel to the track. So I, I'd, I'd like to go back and spend some more time as a tourist to, to soak it all in, but, um, definitely, uh, an experience I'll remember. All right. Let's close with a question from an M Pruitt who just sent one in. How are things going in your Bomarito automotive group Mazda? Uh, have you been a good, have you been a good lad, Oliver? No roasty burnouts and that kind of, uh, hooning on the street. Uh, I, uh, for those who don't know, share the story of, of how you have a, a nice daily driver, but also the, the expectations of how you will represent the fine company. Yeah, right. So, so I met, uh, I met John Bomarito two years ago, um, at the Bomarito 500. Um, I wasn't racing that weekend. I was in USF 2000. Um, but I was there to support Anthony Martin and pro Mazda and Cape motorsports. And, um, I met him there and, 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 um, developed a relationship with him and, you know, kept that relationship going. Um, and I, you know, after we announced the, the Andretti opportunity this year, um, you know, I knew I was going to be spending a lot of time and, in Indianapolis and I had to get, I had to find a way to get around, you know, I couldn't, couldn't keep borrowing cars here and there. Um, that's not always ideal. So, um, I asked, I asked John if, um, if he'd be willing to, to loan me, uh, uh, Mazda three, um, which is a fantastic car that, that, you know, their, their new models are, are, um, you know, a bit, bit more luxurious than they've had in the past. And I've, I love everything about it. And, uh, so John, he did put my logo on the side of it. So I can't, I can't drive too crazy. <laughs> especially around Indianapolis. Um, so that's, uh, he might've done, he might've done that on purpose. I don't know. Just to keep me out of trouble. <laughs> Again, I just love it, man. You know, this is yeah. just you turning relationships, making good relationships here. And we've seen obviously the, uh, Bomberito automotive group, uh, what I believe on the, on your headrest on your Indy yes. lights machine yeah. as well. So pretty yeah. cool, cool stuff, yeah, man. But, yeah. We're very, very happy very happy to have them on, on in our corner and um we're, we're going to be doing some some media stuff uh before the uh bomberito 500 event um here in a couple of weeks so excited to keep that going i guess i should have I re- i'm wishing i was as smart as you because my wife and i have a mazda cx9 but we didn't think about coming up with any kind of deal or trying to strike something so i'm gonna ask him for an upgrade next year uh see all right there you go smart man oliver ask you Really happy for you, the success that you were having. Can't wait to speak after your first IndyCar test to see how that went. And also, also cannot wait to see how the rest of the 2019 Indy Light season plays out. And I'm sure we'll have you back on here very soon. Thanks again for making some time, my man. Thank you so much for having me. All right, it's time to get to questions. And as some of you know, uh, with what's been going on on the home front with my wife and, and a lot of the things we were fighting and battling and whatnot, 
uh, the old days of recording the week in IndyCar podcast of me sitting down, doing a little introduction, then recording the first interview with my first guest, then the second guest, then doing your questions and then putting that on the good old Intar webs. Yeah, that hasn't happened in a while. So these are kind of piecemeal things, unfortunately, for right now. Uh, so starting recording here at 9.28 p.m. on a Monday evening, our cat Rocky, who was mad, I guess, because he hasn't seen me for most of the day because I've been with my wife, um, just decided to jump up on the desk here, meow in my face, walk over, give me the side eye, then jump up on my chest, climb over, walk to the back of the chair, kind of sort of put his ass, not in my face, but just generally show me the business end of a cat, meow again, and then jump down. So I'm just sharing this because <laughs> ah, this is what we got. Okay. As I will have mentioned in the intro, which I've yet to do yet, but hopefully I'll remember to do that. You all send in amazing questions. That's not me pandering. I'm not blowing smoke here. I genuinely mean that. So something has happened here. I th sometime around May. I don't know. Something happened in May where we've gone from usually I'd get maybe two pages worth of questions. Uh, I don't know why not really a lot of folks didn't send in questions for me, knowing that I'm like one of kind of the few people on the planet left who covers IndyCar full time. Regardless, all good. But something's happened in and around May where, yeah, I've got seven pages of questions this week. Last week was, I think, five and a half or six took me more than two hours to answer them and i'm trying to come up with a, a methodology here that works going forward so what i did i'm staring at this hopefully it's kind of funny i bought myself a little timer like you would use if you were you know got a turkey in the oven and maybe the range isn't working and the timer there who knows um i bought a little timer and i told myself before I sent out the request for questions. Okay, what I don't want to do is keep posting three-hour-long weekend IndyCar podcasts, half hour, 45 minutes with the first guest, 15, 20, 25 with the second, an intro, and then six, seven pages of questions. So that's what I told myself. I'm going to do an hour from now on, and I'm going to get through as many as I can. And then I sent out the request for questions, and then you all sent in seven pages of questions for me alone and they're freaking amazing so what i'm going to do is this and i'm going to try and implement this going forward at least while again time is something i don't have a lot of we're also having to move and by we i mean me um yeah so i'm going to do my best the idea of doing this in one hour might be a little bit silly uh so it's now 9 31 um, been gone pretty much all day. Haven't eaten dinner because if I ate dinner, I'd fall asleep while I was doing this. So haven't had any coffee. I'm just trying to get ready and trying to get going to ramp myself up. So I'm going to try and answer as many as I can in a little over an hour, whatever that number ends up being. And so if I don't go as in depth on some things as I normally do, please just know I'm trying to do quantity instead of drawn outedness, not a word. So Maybe you'll, okay, I'm going to turn up the volume here. You're going to hear the beep. All right, 
the timer is going. <laughs> ah, my life is crazy, y'all. It was once all so dang simple. Let's get going on the MP uh, machine gun, hopefully rapid fire, answer as many as I can. Week in any car podcast Q&A session brought to you by all kinds of awesome people who sent them in. We're going to start off with Jerry Siddharth. Thanks, by the way, Jerry, for sending the really nice little DM over the weekend mentioning how uh, uh, you'd wish we had another live podcast mid-Ohio. says the UAK 18 provided really strong, really good racing at mid-Ohio in the last two seasons, which is an improvement over previous years. What do you believe it is about this kit that has caused this change? I guess if we're queuing off of mid-Ohio, Jerry, which was indeed freaking awesome, uh, Firestone obviously is going to make tires that match the downforce levels coming off of whatever bodywork kit. There's been three or four different styles, it seems like, or actually I think factually since the DW12 emerged in 2012. And when we had the really high downforce, crazy, stupid, stupid manufacturer downforce levels through 2017, Firestone obviously did an amazing job to make tires that would withstand almost, you know, freaking looking like drag racing tires. They're being squashed so heavily. So you had two things, Jerry. You had ridiculous downforce that made it more or less impossible to pass on the straights uh, through real slipstreaming because there's so much downforce and drag being made. Plus, in the corners, the cars were just like someone had hit the fast forward button because they could do it. And then you had tires that would allow that as well. So awesome thing here, peeling back 1,000 plus pounds of downforce, Firestone coming back on the tires as well. Uh, we have something where the cars don't always have sufficient grip uh, to really just drive them in a punishing manner every single lap. That's why we saw with Scott Dixon's tires, slightly used reds, uh, going off towards the end of the race, and Felix on newer blacks. I mean, we had some real disparity going on here, which is pretty awesome. I would say if this was back in the manufacturer air kit days, Jer, no chance. So the, uh, the downforce reduction, the... Uh, Ability for Firestone to make tires that aren't as crazy grippy as well has just taken down the ability for these cars to break at the last millimeter into the corners, then go a trillion miles an hour through the corners, everybody more or less on rails. So a little bit of variability here, which I really love. Let's go to Justin Brockwell. Thanks for sending this in, Justin. Don't get questions from you that often, but usually really enjoy them. And here we are. Seems to me that tire compounds brought to Mid-Ohio were exactly what was needed would you agree that the best road course tires are where you have the blacks that are solid and last a whole fuel stint while the reds are faster but start dropping off anywhere from 50 to 75% into a fuel run? I really enjoy watching drivers hang on to a car with old red tires. 100% Justin. Uh, this is the magic formula. The, the little secret, it's not a secret, but it's the pursuit of a secret is Obviously, Firestone in, in IndyCar, uh, as I hear Rose, our cat Rosie playing with things I've put out and need to put away in boxes. Um, Pirelli in Formula One, they get a idea. They have a pretty solid idea of how to make tires that achieve the thing they want to produce entertaining racing, but it's not an exact formula. Uh, it's like you hear from race engineers. Uh, what was it? Jeremy Millis 
Alexander Rossi's engineer after Rossi beat the field by 40 seconds or whatever it was, 30 seconds at Road America. You know, he said, yeah, if I knew how to do this every race, I would, obviously. Uh, same thing here, where obvious, you know, Kara Adams and the, the Firestone team, they are trying to make tires that are awesome, that create, just as you mentioned, Justin, uh, the primaries that are rock solid, quick, but not quickest and reds that are really quick but have a limited shelf life uh competitively they would try and ace that ratio at every single road and street course if they could but it's i wish it was that easy of a thing it's very much and not only are the tires black but it is a black art uh, it's a science that they've been trying to master for years and nobody can but yeah i'm with you uh this kind of race is perfect it's the one where whether you're on blacks or reds it seems to make no difference that we often don't have the most enjoyable road to street course races. Uh, Carlos Villalobos. Carlos, thank you for always sending in fun stuff. Question. If Felix had managed to crash both him and Dixie out of the race, how fast would Chip have brought back uh, Nicola Manassian to drive the 10 car? You know, one of the things I love about my listeners is y'all have the history and you can just do a callback to what, 2001, uh, whatever exact year it was, uh, 2000. Yeah, that's hilarious. I got I to gotta admit, Carlos, the one thing about Chip, which always surprises me, and it's a, a Roger Penske thing, too. If someone crashes, probably outside the Indy 500, if one of their drivers crashes while in a highly competitive position, they're not going to be happy. But the why aren't they reacting the way I would by wanting to bop the guy in the head or fire him or do something you usually get a response of like, hey, he was there. I mean, hopefully not too long we'll be able to say they because there will be enough she's, so it won't be so gender specific to reality. But he was in there. He was in the fight. There was something, you know, come on, okay, not happy, but look, we were there. They knew we were here. There's a part of me that thinks, Carlos, while no one would have been happy if he'd taken Dixie out and himself, there would have at least been something in the back of Chip's head chips big beautiful sweaty head that said all right well at least we know this is possible now at least we can see that a one two chip ganassi racing punch which we have lacked for so long is here not saying that would have been a first thought or 50th thought but somewhere in there there would have been a okay at least we know we can do this they haven't been able to do that for a really long time uh, Dennis Zosek, Marshall, there's been a lot of talk about a NASCAR IndyCar doubleheader. Is there any technical or engineering reason why IndyCar couldn't run Daytona or Talladega? He says, I'm not saying it's a good idea financially or otherwise, but I always hear people dismiss it out of hand without giving any facts to back it up. Well, first of all, Dennis, I love you. <laughs> this is it's the best. I love this. Uh, we do know that forgive me on the exact year 2005 three something like that that indycar did hold a test at daytona uh, nothing's come of it nothing's happened since then um daytona i'm i think that might be an easier one between the two talladega is just insane first of all and it's so rough and bumpy and otherwise by comparison we're talking strictly the oval not the uh, Daytona Roval that's used for the 24-hour race. Um, Talladega, while I think it'd be the most amazing of the two, 
I just think circuit wise, uh, yeah, those, the, you know, the NASCARs get thrown around there very heavily. Uh, a super low, super finicky, arrow, twitchy Indy car. Yeah. I'm, I'm not thinking, uh, Oriole Servia wins that race because the pace car is going to be all that's left. Daytona, I think might be an option could be um where talladega stands out as maybe more of an outlier even if the circuit surface was just fine yeah i think in super speedway trim we'd be talking some scary numbers so there would probably have to be a special arrow package there that just bolts on significantly more downforce for nothing other than to slow the cars down um daytona again i still think it'd be ridiculous speed um, you know, just like the Indy 500, but with serious banking, uh, to spin these things up. So, yeah, I think there'd have to be something similar as well. You could talk about yet another boost reduction, but that would be a pretty expensive thing, uh, on the engine manufacturer's part, having to map every, I mean, although buying new wing parts wouldn't be cheap, I think the engine manufacturers would suggest that might be something they would be willing to help with compared to the cost of having to do to develop and build specialized even lower boost motors so um yeah but speed dennis that's just the thing both would be insane and i just think talladega between the two surface wise might be the real oh no no it's like an off-road race on an oval um let's go to darren dubois says it's great name speaking of Oriole Servia, any update on the Indy 500 team that was looking to expand with them next season? Because I think their name was Strange Racing. It's actually Stange, and actually, I'm not sure if it's Stange or Stange. Uh, I failed to ask, but yeah, it's weird because there's no R. Uh, S-T-A-N-G-E. I have not had any update. I've had a nice text or two from our man Oriole Servia in the last month or two, but he and I have not spoken, so uh, I'm going to do a mental note to ring my favorite Catalonian and see if that has continued to develop. I did speak with Mr. Stange Stange at Indianapolis after qualifying, and he laid out some of his thoughts and plans on how they might do things. And yeah, seemed very motivated and appeared to have some mo- some money to be able to make it happen. So we'll find out. Um, yet again, I love you guys. You guys make me laugh. Anthony Ghosh says, at what point does turn nine at mid Ohio get named Dixon? (laughs) Ah, that's great. You know, Anthony, after reading your question here, I actually had another thought. Why limit it to turn nine at mid Ohio? Um, after his performance on Sunday, and again, I'm hoping I mentioned this in the intro. I made a note to do it, but since I'm recording the questions first instead of the intro, who knows? Um, I don't know if we are going to see a more impressive thing in 2019 than Scott Dixon's final stint at Mid-Ohio. On used reds, and they weren't highly used, but used reds nonetheless on tires that we could see everyone could see those trailing him it was like shark week uh broke out with indy cars in the midwest being driven by people chasing him down like he was a freaking wounded tuna we saw 
how much grip was not at Dixie's disposal in the closing laps of the mid Ohio race. And yet he still manages to win. It just, it makes no sense. So in honor of that, what his sixth victory at the track, um, in honor of the fact that who knows it's, it's a longer shot than usual, but he still could potentially earn his sixth championship this year. Anthony, I'm just going to suggest, why don't we just rename the NTT IndyCar series? Scott, hey did you watch scott yesterday oh, i was awesome yeah it was a little weird uh joseph newgarden won the scott series but uh i guess you know um it's scott so that's my thought maybe we name turn nine at mid-ohio dixon and if he wins the sixth championship maybe just for a day i can get jay fry kind of one of those hey today you know in your local town the it's named so-and-so day maybe for a day we could get indycar to honorarily name itself scott uh if and when he wins his sixth championship that's my idea it's not necessarily good but it makes me laugh and that's honestly all that's really important right about now john hollinger says marshall on a scale from quote getting involved in a land war in asia end quote to, quote, going up against a Sicilian when death is on the line, end quote. Where would you place Newgarden's ill-fated pass attempt of Ryan Hunter Ray amongst the all-time classic blunders? I know I've said this like three or four times now. I love you guys. Seriously. Now, hopefully you get what I meant when I said, I'm going to limit this to one hour and get through as many as I can. And I see your questions, and I'm like, there's no way I could trim awesome ones like this john thank you and if you haven't picked it up already i kind of need some laughs y'all i know my wife and i are not doing updates right now there is some really heavy stuff going on not mortality wise she's fine but there's some heavy stuff so thank you for just bringing the laughs um here's the thing john it's i don't know if i'm going to remember it five years from now three years from now if he loses the championship as a result of it i'm sure it's going to stick in my brain and everyone else's a little bit more but yeah i mean it, it wasn't contextually i have to keep in mind that at 48 and seven months or however old i am um i've been around long enough to see a lot of these kinds of things so my catalog of where it fits would uh, obviously be different than heck a robin miller who's been around and seen farm 20 plus years more uh but also someone who just started watching indycar five years ago you know it could be uh in the top five if not the top so again it's all relative i it was here's what it was to me this is the thing i will probably remember it as was not a classic to me all time or anything like that it is definitely among the all-time most un-New Garden-type decisions. Not saying he's ever made a mistake before, done something dumb, but that's just not who he has been. That's the main thing I took away, John, was, huh, I wrote something, who knows, maybe I'll get it done here and publish it before Pocono, but kind of the main thoughts for each driver what they need to do where they're at mentally just kind of looking at the season so far and 
I'm glad I haven't published it because New Garden just unwound so much of what I wrote of being the peaceful warrior, of being super going forward, super everything, but uh, thinking his way through things, not overcomplicating things, just, again, peaceful warrior on the attack, but never risking himself, not playing it safe, just not doing dumb things. And then you get this, and it's like, all right, well, so I need to go back and maybe rewrite that thing a little bit because, yeah, that's just not a thing with New Garden. You just don't see it, and there was no reason. The amount of points he would have gained by passing Ryan Hunter Ray would have done, again, who knows how the season will end up, but highly unlikely that's going to be the thing that allows him to beat Alexander Rossi. Uh, the finishing positions were more or less baked in, and it would have taken a big risk to get by Ryan Hunter Ray there. Yeah, um, really surprising because that's not typical New Garden. So, if anything, John, it makes me wonder. Maybe not Pocono because Pocono, you know, I think more Gateway, Gateway Monterey. Those two tracks, the four left, those are two where you have to make a lot of decisions that could negatively impact you if you either get them wrong or force things too much. And the forcing it thing, that hasn't been a new garden component. So coming out of mid-Ohio, part of me wonders, like, ooh, is this a flaw? Is this a one-time thing or, ooh, is this a, could this crop back up again? So, yeah, when you see things, when I see things like that, as Rocky just stepped, jumped up on the desk, stepped across, stepped on the keyboard, and I now have the number six and about 14 number sevens typed across your question. (laughs) Sorry about that. Um this is a real question man is this going to be something is or is this just a one-off never going to happen again learn from it etc if this is a little bug in new gardens code ooh, that would be fascinating how you doing rock you going to jump up and show me your butt again are you just along for the ride pal he's just looking at me uh, let's go to buddy campbell buddy says with electrification being talked about more and more each day in auto racing <clears throat> could IndyCar start small with turning usf 2000 fully electric the races are short enough and the car slow enough to where they could match today's lap time interesting question buddy and please don't hesitate from sending in things like this i just there's a lot of little things to kind of straighten out here IndyCar does not own and has nothing to do with USF 2000. That's fully owned and administered as a series by Anderson Promotions. So it's not theirs to mess with. If you think about the cost to go fully electric at the first step of the Cooper tires presented road to Indy, um, we would be talking about effectively killing the first step on the ladder because the costs would be so insane that no one could afford to put their son or daughter into the first step. So an IndyCar, to my knowledge, does not have the money because it would have done it, uh, doesn't have the money to fund 
25 fully electric race cars just for the sake of it. And I guess the other thing, too, which, again, I'm not seeing it, but maybe you can enlighten me on what you're seeing here. I don't understand. I don't see how doing this USF 2000 has anything to do with IndyCar. Um, electrification and motor racing is a thing. It's been around for a while. There would be no reason to start small with a series they don't own. So if they're going to do it, I would imagine they would do it in the big series. And then the last, maybe the biggest, most overriding point is the reason to include electrification would be to appease the auto manufacturers involved in the series. And since USF 2000 is not something that Honda or Chevy or any other manufacturer would use to promote themselves, um, yeah, I just can't see any angle here that would make sense. So uh, if they're going to do it, I would say you're just going to see a electric hybrid system added to the Indy cars and just do it. Let's go to Kenny C., it says, I've really liked the NBC Gold coverage this year, whether it be Kevin Lee at Barber, Elio at Mid-Ohio, one of the numerous chuckle fests provided by Paul Tracy, Townsend Bell, and Robin Miller exchanges. Uh, he says, the improvements needed would be $99 for all Road to Indy levels and no commercials on live streamed races. Um, I would love to have all the Road to Indy involved. Uh, I think... Cost-wise, it still might be a little bit out of hand uh, in terms of the production cost to do all that. I know that Road to Indy TV, I believe, has all the races uh, that aren't on gold, those being Indy Lights. I could be wrong there. It's just because I watch Indy Lights on gold, so it's my ignorance. If it's elsewhere, please educate me on that if I am wrong. Um, I've been really digging it too, Kenny. Uh, Truly, it's... It's taken me a little while to get fully down with live streaming lots of stuff, especially with the UFC, which I've loved for a really long time, moving to ESPN Plus for seemingly just about everything. Um, Pretty much most nights when I come home and want to watch something, I am going straight, A, firing up the good old uh, Amazon Fire Stick, and then either accessing whatever is there, or to Netflix, but primarily it's through the uh, little fire stick and then going to the ESPN app, ESPN plus uh, the NBC sports app. Um, Yeah. Being home uh, since May 21st, you'd be surprised at how many IndyCar sessions I have consumed on my phone, sitting in a hospital or wherever else, but just the ability to live stream has been pretty amazing. And I'm with you. The, uh, the NBC Gold IndyCar coverage, I give give that a big, big, big thumbs up. All right, we're 31-ish minutes in. I don't know how we're doing, but uh, hopefully we're doing. David Pequeen says, Marshall, seems like we aren't expecting a lot of turnover in IndyCar driver lineups for 2020. But in Indy Lights, we have Oliver Askew, Renus VK, Ryan Norman, and possibly A.A. Ron, Aaron Tielitz, all with their sights set on IndyCar in the very near future. With which teams would these drivers have the best chance of sliding into an IndyCar race seat for the next season? And how likely do you rate each driver's chances of graduation? So, David, you raise not only a great question, great point. Um, we have the overriding issue here of an issue that certainly is not getting better. And that is 
not enough seats. There's just simply not enough seats to handle the growth. The again, I'm not exactly sure how we should phrase it, but the possibility maybe of new drivers coming in and looking at how possibly we can get some of these drivers into seats, how and where and when will some of these drivers find a home? It might sound silly. I don't know. Maybe it is, but truly, uh, where do we fit some of these kids? I'm not exactly sure there's an easy answer right now. What I'm looking at, what I'm thinking about more than anything is okay. We have talent. Some of them have money more than probably anything. David, I don't know. I don't know if we're going to solve this problem anytime soon. And that's the frustrating part. So on the surface say, well, Hey, Chip Ganassi racing wasn't so long ago that you were a four car operation. You're two. Could you go back to three? That would be super helpful, but they would want it to be a driver like an ask you that they certainly like, and they're going to be testing, um, bringing a really super solid budget. The, Hey, I've got 70% of a budget. What can you do for me? That's not a Chip Ganassi type program. Roger Penske has been very clear. They want to do three cars. No more. That door is not open. Ed Carpenter racing. Maybe. Could they expand to three again if it's a proper money deal? But start working down the line, David, and sorry, that's the thing that frustrates me. I don't see how an Askew without a proper budget is able to find a seat. Renus VK, I think, is going to have an easier time whether he does or does not win the championship because he has a very serious and committed sponsor behind him in Jumbo, a Dutch supermarket chain, which is huge. So that's great. I don't know how big the budget would be. It's going to have to be, you know, five, six million, more six than five. So leaning a little bit to the where chances and whatnot angle, the question, David, again, I think some of the kids you mentioned here are going to be half budgets. If that, Renus is the only one that stands out thanks to a very committed sponsor in Jumbo of, you know, the big dominant supermarket chain in Holland. Um, I think Renus might be the only one with a proper budget to offer. Teams want five to six. I mean, honestly, it's six, but we'll talk to you if you have five for a full season. But I think Oliver, again, he, he, is on the path to getting that million dollar advancement prize can probably put together a couple of million, maybe uh, two million. I don't know. Might come up with half. Where does he go? Michael Andretti really want to run a fifth car. That's a partial season. Now, granted, I mean, Ryan Norman, another Andretti Autosport driver is looking to do the same. What could Ryan come up with half as well? Could there be a fifth Andretti car? That is split between their two lights drivers jumping up at the same time. Not what either one wants, but might be what they have to accept unless they can find a lot of money. Is that something Michael truly wants to do in adding a fifth car? Or, and I'm not saying there's any validity to this, could 
Harding Steinbrenner Racing possibly run a second car through this Andretti Technologies thing using the half budgets from both, splitting the season between the two. Again, just throwing out options here, but it all comes back to this problem that's been a problem for years now, David. Where do some of these kids go? Uh, Marcus Erickson's another one, again, coming back to Marcus. Hey, if things don't work out at Aero SPM and he's on the move, where does he go? Not a lot of options, man. Even for the guys with a budget, with experience. Yeah, uh, it, it is certainly a seller's market, and there's not enough to sell in terms of seat availability. So I think Renus, regardless championship or not, I think we're going to see him in IndyCar next year. I can't say where because I don't honestly know. Um, a Carlin comes to mind. Uh, no one's going to want to go to Foyt, unfortunately. Um, Coin, I don't believe, wants to run three cars unless someone can seriously outspend what Santino might be able to raise to come back for a second year. I'm not sure if that door is open. Carpenter, again, as I mentioned earlier, there could be a little bit of something there. Ray Hall, Letterman Lanigan really likes their, you know, they're on the high end budget wise. So that really might not be much of an option. Aero SPM. I don't know if they're going to want to run a third car for some rookies, etc. They certainly like their money again. Uh, yeah. The Tealitz angle, I think, could there be something in terms of a test, maybe an Indy 500 thing, maybe possibly uh Aaron of the four is the least budgeted so that David I think might be the uh the hardest one of those four to get in but I expect all three uh of the full-time Indy lights drivers you mentioned Oliver Renus and Ryan to be in IndyCar next year in some capacity but yeah um I think some of those might go a little bit later into the off season than they would like Ed Joris says looking at what remains of the silly season is there any possibility that a successful test for Lipe Nasr results in someone like Spencer Piggott losing a ride? Nasr bumps Erickson, who has money that displaces Piggott. I will admit that that scenario crossed my mind, Ed. If there's anything to push back against that, I would say that of late, of very late, Spencer and the team seem to be finding a groove. Know that their race results haven't spoken to that, but just overall, you're knowing that Spencer's there. He, uh, and whether it's in the race, practice session, qualifying, something, this it's starting to gel. And so I would hate to see that get clipped just because someone's able to bring a good budget. I also believe Spencer brings some money not out of his pocket, but the ability to bring, you know, some sponsor support a little bit, not saying it's a ton, but I think there's something there. Uh, one other thing to Ed is Mr. Carpenter is not a huge change guy. Certainly not a huge change guy. And if given the option between ditching Piggott and going with Erickson to get some extra dollars versus continue building, that is what Ed has demonstrated, his willingness to do that. So, yeah, uh, it's interesting how Marcus Erickson really could be uh, a significant agent of change 
if he does not return to Aeroschmidt Peterson Motorsports and what that might do to the rest of the paddock. Simon Rafi, you've got two questions here. First one, why is it that so few tracks in the USA have garages uh, that open on, I'm sorry, why is it that so few tracks, I might have already said that, I don't know, it's 1013, please forgive me. Why is it that so few tracks in the USA have garages that open onto pit lane? It seems to be universal in the rest of the world. Um, well, we're not the rest of the world, I guess would be one thing. We're kind of known for being a little bit independent minded and whatnot, uh, breaking off from another country. And, you know, today it seems like we remind the world every day how we don't see ourselves as being connected to a quote y'all. Um, not saying I subscribe to that, but, uh, that's the message we've been, we have been spouting for a little while now. I would say probably Simon, if I had to guess. If we're talking about many, many tracks adhering to FIA standards and or Formula One tracks, uh, Formula One standards for many of those tracks, I believe they all have this standard. So COTA obviously was built that way. Uh, The Indianapolis Motor Speedway in bringing F1 uh, made some timely changes to allow such a thing. But yeah, it's just not really our thing. It's not really how we do. So, you know. We do how we do. Uh, you also say, with regard to the 2021 IndyCar engine regulations, I've noticed that the uh, Toyota TS050 LMP1 hybrid has a 2.4-liter, 90-degree V6 turbo. Do you think there's any chance they could be a third supplier? I would say no, absolutely not. I wish they were. If they weren't in NASCAR, Simon, I think they would absolutely be an IndyCar. Keep in mind, they're also in IMSA uh, through the Lexus brand. Uh, their luxury brand competing in the GT Daytona class. I realize that's a air quote customer program, but they are certainly heavily embedded there. So they have sports cars slash road racing covered with their luxury brand. They've got, I don't know what you would want to call it. Um, the general racing fan covered in NASCAR, both the top step and the monster energy series with a quote Supra, I believe whatever, is it Tundra? They're Toyota Tundra in the uh, NASCAR truck series. So uh, their bases are covered. I'd love to see that beautiful little 2.4 liter twin turbo V6 in IndyCar. But yeah, uh, it's not exactly to the IndyCar regs itself. So it unfortunately would not copy over directly. But I like you. I love your thinking here, my man. Uh, Michael Mueller, MP for the second year in a row, both Mid-Ohio and Road America IndyCar races went green to checkers with no caution flags. Three other races in 2019 only had one yellow. Rather impressive given the intensity of competition in the IndyCar series. Do you attribute this to the increased, increasingly high standards of drivers in the series? Uh, just racing cleaner than previous years? Or is there a new outlook on yellow flag usage from race control? Maybe a bit of both. I think you have the answer there at the end, Michael. A little bit of both. The Road America track breaking up incident about halfway through and the decision by Kyle Novak to not go yellow and just tell the drivers steer clear. That, to me, spoke to a willingness to put more action in front of fans than maybe some other series do, where it seems like any little thing, it's time to go yellow. So I think driver quality has been really impressive. The rookies that we have this year and last year too, but... Often it's the younger drivers that tend to bounce off of one another a lot. 
It's happened a little bit, but not a crazy amount this year. We have some really high quality, really high quality rookies. So that's been toned down a bit. Veterans haven't really been making asses out of themselves. Some of the drivers, veterans who have reputations for doing silly things haven't been all that silly. So yeah, I think we're kind of a high watermark here of late Michael in terms of uh, driver quote behavior and standards. I also think that race control is actively looking for ways to not send the race into uh, yellow flag territory here. Uh, we'll go back to Ed Joris. He says, why do drivers insist on trying to pass at the bottom of the keyhole at mid Ohio? Uh, I think I can count on one hand the number of clean passes made there versus the fingers and toes of myself and several other fans uh, for all the passing attempts that have come to tears there. This means you, Joseph Newgarden. Sometimes I think that curve should be named. Don't even think about it. Uh, or that a big quote, don't sign should replace one of the breaking markers leading into it. I'm with you, Ed. Um, yeah, as we saw with Felix coming into the corner, I mean, Dixie would have had to have just been a gentleman after you, Felix, to let that happen. It's never going to happen. Felix, again, doesn't have the experience that many of us do from watching the race or maybe competing there and knowing, like, yeah, man, that kind of never happens that late in the corner. Um, and then the, oh, and you're going to, on the, really, at the apex, you're going to get by? Or, you know, yeah, like Joseph and RHR. So I'm with you. I love the idea. Um Maybe that's a fan thing. Maybe for those sitting in the grandstands in that corner. Maybe, you know, I don't know what it is. Some kind of like uh, grandstand beer pong. Like you win a game, you get to be the guy or the gal who has access to a little, you know, LED sign there. And you can kind of type in the things. If you see something dumb happening, you can type in no, Felix, no, bad, something like that. Just, you know, get them to think about it. So I like the idea. And I definitely agree with you, Ed. Uh, let's see. Robbie Berger and Marshall. If Little Al is king of the beach in Long Beach, we need a nickname to commemorate Dixon's dominance at Mid-Ohio. What should it be? King of China Beach? Ruler of Thunder Valley? Supreme potentate of the Mid-Ohioans? You got me there with Ruler of Thunder Valley. Who wouldn't want that title, Robbie? Just in general. Even if you're at a place where Thunder Valley doesn't exist, like, that sounds like something. Hello, I'd like to introduce you to my friend, Mr. Dixon, ruler of Thunder Valley. People that have no idea what it is, but would instantly assume this guy is a badass. So I think that's the winner right there. Uh, let's see. Secondly, when there's a tow link or other suspension swap in the pits during a race, do the mechanics use a torque wrench when assembling the nuts and bolts? Or is it a calibrated arm or a good and tight? Great question. I would say that if we are talking some sort of unholy kapow, that really is going to require a ton of work and time. You would probably get that level of detail. If it is a whole, oh, we might be able to get this done and get them back out and only lose a lap and maybe we can get that back. It's probably the really super hand tight. I'll just mention, cause I've, was a mechanic for a really long time. You can kind of sort of tell 
if you're talking normal nuts and bolts, not the wheel gun, not the torque on, you know, an IndyCar wheel. No, that's a big old pneumatic thing, and you need that to be correct there. You can't, your arm's not going to give you the correct number there, unless you're Shaquille O'Neal, maybe. But for the most part, if you've put together the cars enough times and you know the torque on the various nuts and bolts, you can have a, hey, Rock, you can have a pretty good feel for what's right and what's not. So I would say in many instances, while actually taking the time to calibrate the torque wrench and, and whatnot, it probably, yeah, the, the impetus is to get back out. And in most instances, the vast majority of IndyCar mechanics are very experienced and know. I realize that doesn't add up to a fact. You just know. Yeah, you kind of do, actually. Uh, the bolt fell out. You know, the nut came off and the bolt fell out. That's not a story you really hear much of. So uh, there you go. Let's go to Scott Wharton. It says, after Sunday's race at Mid-Ohio, I was walking towards my car and overheard a fan saying, IndyCar should make a rule that with five laps to go on road and street courses and 10 laps to go in ovals, all lap traffic should be forced to go to the paddock and park it so they don't interfere with the outcome of the finish. While this might seem like a good idea to some, do you think it is, or do you think things like this are best handled among drivers via good old-fashioned payback? I love you guys, uh, for real. Scott, um, while the person you overheard, was it you, Scott? Come on, was it you? Or are we putting this off on someone else? Um, uh, you know, I, I'd be lying if I said that's never occurred to me. Like, come on, man. Do we really need you know, get out of the way? Out of the woody move. You're not the race. Move. As I've gotten older and under fully understand the, the business and economics and reasonings behind we have why we have what we have. The reason that the team when Marco Andretti's car feels like it's killing him, even though it isn't, and he wants to stop, and they say Come in, we'll make a change and go back out, and we're going to keep trying to make it better. It's nothing to do with Marco. It's because contracts have been signed with sponsor A, B, and C, and D, and they are paying money to see their cars on track. So while from an entertainment standpoint, it's like, get out of the way, just move. Honestly, it's, you know, the end of the basketball game where it's KD and LeBron lined up across from one another. And all you want to do is have all the other guys move out of the way so it's just a one-on-one because how could the finish be any better than that? Totally get that part. In that instance, probably could happen. That'd be fine. No one would get too mad. In this instance, for all the lapped cars and ones where they aren't in the fight, well, in some way, shape, or form, money is changing hands for them to be there. And there are contracts to fulfill not only that part, but in many cases, you either have a driver who is paying for the opportunity to be there and have expectations to deliver to the, whether it's mom or dad or sponsors that are making it happen. Then you often have the other scenario or the possibly the secondary one as well of sponsors are there (laughs) in the suites watching something or at home in one way or the other. The cars being on track every lap, even if they're laps down, that's the return on investment. And so I I hate 
you know, I wish it wasn't that way. I wish it was just back in the day. There's no one else to satisfy but ourselves. It's entertainment and sport and nothing else comes to mind. It's not the case, unfortunately. Let's go to Harrison Riley. And uh, we're actually, we're making some good progress here. Hello once again, Rock. Glad to hear you. Thanks for meowing. It's everything that I needed. Uh, let's go to Harrison Riley. says, I was hoping to get some behind-the-scenes insight. Why is Zach Brown always in the news? Obviously, he's the team manager for one of the most famous race teams in the world. He's actually the CEO. And naturally gets asked many questions, but it seems like every month there's an article about him speculating about McLaren's future in IndyCar. Does Zach seek out journalists, or is this just a result of journalists always pestering Brown about IndyCar and their involvement? I know uh, he also has a stake in many motorsports outlets. Does that factor into it as well? It's an interesting, that's a great question. Not just interesting, but a great question, Harrison. I've known Zach for a while. uh, Well before he became Zach, guy who runs big famous motor racing team. Um, I cannot recall uh, a single instance where Zach reached out to me and said, Hey, let's talk about this thing. Um, can't think of it truly. Um, which is interesting because you might think that would be the case, but indeed that has not that I can recall ever happened. Have I had McLaren reach out and say, hey, we're going to have some news about this thing or, hey, uh, we got something happening that might be, you know, maybe more your reporting specialty than some others? Yes, but that happens to everybody. But for the most part, again, just being completely transparent, um, I've never had Zach reach out and say, hey, uh, let's do a story about this because I want to be in the news. Uh, What Zach is or does or that is different is he is uh very open absolutely very very open harrison to talk and even if it's a no comment like i got today uh, he's still willing to communicate which is pretty awesome i (laughs) i won't spill any tea here but um there are some team owners who I know that, okay, I have to start the process. <laughs> got to start the process. I need to ask so-and-so a question about this thing. And so I got to start the process. Make the phone call. That's not going to get returned. Then I'll call again tomorrow so they'll see that I've called twice. But I'm not trying to be stalkerish. Just trying to, you know, clearly you've now seen two calls from me know that that's probably not going to get a response as well but again got to start the process and know that somewhere around phone call three maybe phone call four i'll either get a call back or a text hey man know you've been trying to get a hold of me sorry i've been busy etc etc and then maybe there'll be a conversation um there are some where again i'll try not to go too far here but um not because i'm afraid just because i don't want to waste too much time here you'll notice that with some teams i often if i need a quote from a senior person about something you'll often see that at that team the person who owns a team who's well known is rarely interviewed or cited why 
I know that if I'm trying to put up a story tomorrow about, hey, I heard that you're chasing driver A or B or driver C or D is leaving. I know that if I go to the team owner, yeah, uh, A, start the process, three, four phone calls, maybe might get a response, might not. You can obviously ask the PR reps, the super helpful, but again, they can't make someone do something they don't want to, especially when it's their boss. Uh, so you'll often see me go to their number two or number three or someone that I know is a trusted voice who can give me an honest answer or at least give me a good denial um, because you know they're going to pick up the phone. Um, that's just the way it is. So with Zach, he is the person who's pretty much always willing to talk, and that's awesome. It also means that that probably you have a higher frequency of questions. Keep in mind, he's also in charge of a very big, important thing, like you mentioned, and he has a lot of aspirations that his predecessors did not that go well beyond Formula One. So just subject-wise, whether it's F1, IndyCar, possibly going sports car racing with a hypercar or something like that, uh, going back to Le Mans, Fernando Alonso has just been a separate topic in and of itself all along. Loop those, tie a loop around those four. Got a lot of stuff to hit Zach about. And there's a lot of moving parts and pieces. And therefore, yeah. So, but I do get that there seems to be a overexposure aspect that a lot of folks react to when it comes to Zach. Uh, if not, a, okay, all right, here we go again. You want to do the thing great. Um, as Rocky jumps up for the fourth time, hi, pal. I love you, buddy. I'll play with you as soon as I'm done. I promise. Um, I enjoy Zach. I haven't seen him favor the outlets that he oversees, um, those that are Russian-owned. But regardless, uh, there is maybe something to the, you know, maybe respond to fewer questions that might not be a bad thing uh but i guess look he knows that he would do it if he wanted to um so that's about all i have to say on that subject harrison but it's a really good one um but again i've never had him reach out say hey could we talk about this do a story about that um Maybe it will, but it hasn't so far. Let's go to Alex Eichmiller. Hey, Alex. What has happened to Tony Kanaan this year? He's currently 18th in points and only has two results in the top 10. I mean, this is just a team that keeps falling further and further back, Alex. Um, they have some, what I mentioned a little bit earlier, just a little bit earlier. We're now at 60 minutes, by the way. So anything after this never happened. I've officially stopped even though the podcast will continue and words will continue to come out of my mouth. Um, if Ed Carpenter and Ed Carpenter Racing are change-averse, AJ Foyt Racing is that times 10,000. I've said it many times before. I'll keep saying it. It's a team that has needed to make changes for so many years and then finally did a little bit and then did a little bit and then did a little bit. And they keep making changes, but they're small. And Tony Kanaan's not the problem. Absolutely not the problem. Uh, I'll bar myself from repeating something I've said many times because questions like this have come up, not specifically pointed to Tony, though, Alex. But uh, 
good engineers, really, truly great, great engineers, young guns, young men, women who might really positively affect that team. They don't want to go to that team. So we're hoping that Scott Harner, ex-Chip Ganassi team manager, will be able to recruit some people who wouldn't have otherwise thought to go there. But that's a team that needs to revamp its engineering core, although there's some people there that I know and really like and think the world of. This is the equivalent of needing a head coach change in the NFL yet again. Uh, From a management standpoint, I mean, Scott Harner should be able to improve that team if he's allowed to. Um, Tony's not the problem, though. Um, As he has said, I might not be Scott Dixon, but I'm not two seconds off of Scott Dixon. And it's just, it's 100% accurate. I I wish I could say that they're, nope, Tony's done. He's not done. Um, He's not done. Put him back in a Ganassi car. I don't know if he's chasing down. I don't know if it's a one, two, three Ganassi finish, but I know that he's pretty darn inside the top five for sure. So, yeah, I just hate to see it. Love him. Hate to see it. Deserves so much better. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, Let's go to Colin Young. Okay, hear me out. This is all on the Marshall Pro podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers in torontomotorsports.com. And this is certainly not going over 60 minutes. Uh, Now that we're at 62-ish, 3-ish minutes. Okay, hear me out. Push to pass seconds. Roll over to the next road and street course race. Pro-rated for laps completed. So someone who drops out on lap one doesn't have a huge advantage the next weekend. Someone who could have full race boost all Laguna thoughts well i'll say it for the whatever time i love you guys this is the best colin um i think it'd be crazy i would love the idea of someone having that where what would be quite interesting and i tried to think about this last weekend if i could come up with the exact number how much does constantly using push to pass where does that factor into fuel mileage wise in a scenario like this so if it were to happen <laughs> yeah are we talking if everyone if everyone's doing uh i don't know a two stopper does this put this person into an automatic three because they're burning up so much uh, i don't honestly know so i kind of like the idea i like randomness one thing to know about me i like randomness that's why i love rain races it just all the practice all the everything forget it it's over total crap shoot uh i'm not saying i want it all the time but i definitely like it i mean look the uh if you watch the formula one race last weekend in germany it was awesome because of the rain it threw everyone for a loop so yeah something like this i think it'd be awesome if this thing was announced like as the cars are getting to within five minutes of rolling away from the grid (laughs) just all right uh zach veach <laughs> you got a full race of boost go get them see how they deal with it right and i mean truly just maybe one minute before they roll off two minutes before they roll off someone from indycar goes over to uh, his engine tech or whatever and says hey by the way do this so the team doesn't have time to plan for it. There's no strategy work done. Uh, you know, again, I 
if if we're going to randomize stuff like this, let's get fully random and see how the team deals with it. Maybe they totally screw it up. Uh, maybe he blows the thing up. I don't know, but I kind of like, uh, yeah, I like the crazy. Let's go to Kyleisk16. MP, is there any silly season news regarding Mateus Laced? Wondering if another team sees potential in him. Kyle, I've heard nothing on this front. I think I touched on it last week. It saddens me. Uh, I do know the team. I know of one driver, uh, at least one driver. I believe I know a second now, but I know of one driver that the team has inquired about their availability uh, to fill that seat in the future. Don't know if anything would happen. Don't know if Mateus's money with Brazilian TV funding, helping to fund that seat. I don't know any of the details there. Again, that's my apologies. Uh, if my life was back to normal, these are all the things I'd be chasing down. Uh, just honestly haven't had the mental bandwidth to do it. I think Mateus is done. I, I can't think of another team that would willfully go after him unless he has a budget to shop. And if that's the case, hello, Carlin. Hello, we'll see who. Carlin's the one that stands out as the most obvious. But if the kid has a budget, then I think he's attractive simply because he has a budget. I do think that in another team, going back to Carlin, where he did some very good things in Indy Lights, obviously, if that could happen, and he has you know really solid engineering behind him as well, I think the kid could surprise people. Truly, I think there's something there. I'm not saying future IndyCar champion, but I think that there's certainly talent there to be explored. I just hope it happens. Um, I would hate to see his career flame out after two years with a team that was just, you know, not the kids made mistakes too. Don't get me wrong, but you know, if we're if such a thing as giving a refund happened in motor racing this might be an example where it should be considered let's go to isosceles great name provided i pronounced it correctly and if not i suck marshall i must admit i enjoyed that there was just a five minute intro before the green flag this weekend on tv I think long pre-race show uh, reduces excitement, especially for short attention span millennials, and leads to overexposure. See NASCAR. Any thoughts? I am going to give you the huge thumbs up on this one. I do believe, well, how's this? I didn't get a chance to see it live, but I did love the fact that it seemed like we were jumping right into that sucker, and that was pretty awesome. So I'm with you on that. Now, granted, I live and work in the sport. So for the most part, there's nothing I am going to hear in a pre-race show that I, for the most part, don't already know, haven't thought of. Um, you know, if it's Jan Beekus finding out something, hey, this team's decided to do this instead of that. Ooh, all right, that's great. An on-the-ground nugget. But for the most part, Hey, Driver X, how do you think you can do today? Well, it's not going to tell me a thing. So I don't really need to see a lot of that. If there's a cool human interest thing, here's a little video package we did. Great. That's great. So for me, I don't really need that. But I would say for fans who don't live and breathe IndyCar but enjoy it, it might be a fun thing to come into. 
if things are broken up in such a way where, you know, going forward, maybe there is a 30 minute pre-race show, but on the hour, you know, two minutes into the hour, we're going green. So for those who just truly want to tune in and go instead of tune in and wait 10, 15, however many minutes long for it to get going, I'm with you. I actually think the let's get it on. I think there's something really cool about that. Uh, let's see, where shall we go for questions from here as I sing to you and apologize? Uh, Steven Straub. Steve, thanks for always sending in great stuff every week. Any updates on Pocono for 2020 and beyond? Uh, so the last I heard, both Pocono Raceway and IndyCar were in talks. Any truth to Watkins Glen coming back onto the schedule? Best you and your wife. Thank you, Steve. You also have another question here. I saw a note sent through. Uh, it was a little quote sent through by racers awesome kelly crandall who covers nascar and it was a quote from track president on this very subject and the comments were along the the lines of we have reached out to indycar expressed our interest etc etc we haven't heard back hey rock i don't know if you heard rocky again but this dude seriously wants some attention um yeah so i think steve it's a case of if indycar wants to make it happen they need to re-engage to make it happen uh, as for watkins Glen, rumors is all that i've heard nothing that makes me believe it's truly going down and we're at about 70-ish minutes. I think we can get this done pretty quickly. So I'm trying to talk as quickly as I can. And Rocky's bugging me. And it's 1042 and I'm hungry. Uh, Steve also says there have been several costly fuel probe issues this season. Joseph Newgarden last weekend. Alex Ross, you say at the Indy 500. I'm just going to say Alexander Rossi because it seems like, yeah, if it's going to happen, it happens to him, period. Uh, do teams routinely replace a fuel probe after a certain number of uses, or is it used until it fails? Any thought to using a manual flow mechanism controlled by the fueler? Um, Rocky, chill, dude. Seriously, you got a home. It's paid, you know, we're good. You're covered. You got food. Like, you got a place to sleep. No one's trying to eat you. It's all good. <sighs> um, service steve is what happens uh we those get serviced regularly i would say the ganassis and penskis might do it every single race make sure all the o-rings are good all the seals are good i can't say why it would happen to one driver multiple times other than just really strange odds keep in mind that while it's still just metal and rubber ceiling type materials these things do get slammed around a bit and so you know with the the fuel probe itself they're very sturdy they're heavy they're built to take punishment but it is possible to kind of beat it up a little bit i know there's questions about the dead man the the valve that is manually opened that allows the fuel to come through the tank down through the hose and into the car could there have been something clogging up or malfunctioning there in general? Those things do happen. Um, would just say for the bigger teams, Steve, yeah, they're trying to be on top of these all the time and have spares. I can tell you that in many instances with some of the IndyCar teams that I worked for that were very small, uh, maybe medium size at most. Uh, yeah, we just put it in the box, put it in the trailer and you know, go back to the shop, prepare the car, blah, blah, blah. And then you go to the track and then you take it out and then you use it again. 
and yeah, not a lot of attention being paid. So I would say with New Garden, for example, you know, if this was a smaller team that doesn't compete often, wouldn't be a total shocker if it was a problem with Penske. You can pretty much guarantee it's not a lack of effort or prep. So I don't know what happened, but yeah. As for manual flow mechanism controlled by the fueler, I don't know if I'm seeing how that fixes stuff, but that's just me. Getting down to the finish line here, Sean Starkey. Marshall, what will it take to get as many cars in Indy Lights as there are in USF 2000 or Indy Pro 2000? In other words, how is it the lower rungs in the road to Indy are better funded and supported than Lights? Not sure if you've sent in questions before, Sean, so thank you if this is your first. Uh, the really simple, dumb answer that comes to mind here is money. It is much more expensive to do Indy Lights to buy a car and or just pay to compete in it for the season compared to the first two steps of the ladder. Granted, the first two steps aren't exactly chump change, but yeah, we're talking a million-ish a year for Indy Lights and fractions of that for Indy Pro 2000. Um, I think 400-ish thousand, three, 400, something in that range. Um, I could have folks laughing at me right now in the series, but I'm doing my best. And USF 2000, definitely below that. So, yeah, just by the numbers, man, um, you're probably always going to have more of the entry-level and mid-tier because of costs and how much easier it is to get into that than... The amount of people able to put their son or daughter into a series that costs two hundred and fifty grand for the year versus a million, yeah, there just aren't as many. So that's one of the main reasons. And one of the main reasons or one of the main things that's been worked on, thought about, strategized, and continues to be something that folks spend a lot of time trying to figure out is how do we get indie lights down? How do we get that number to seven fifty something? Um, indie lights grows when the number comes down and the number isn't high. The number isn't crazy high. Like, Oh boy, someone's really robbing the series in this department. Um, it's yeah, they do a fair number of races. The cars are fast. The cars are high tech. The engines make a lot of power. There's a lot of grip. There's all kinds of things. Plus these businesses need to make a profit. They need to have, employees and benefits and all kinds of things. So I, with one myself and one friend could run a USF 2000 car for the weekend. We could drive it to the track in our whatever. Um, I'm not saying we'd be super competitive, but you can do scale. You can do these things on a much smaller scale. As you get up to Indy lights, there's certain, not like you need a ton of people, but you know, I can both wrench on a USF two. I, well, I can do it to all these, but USF two thousand car. I could do all the mechanical work on it, do all the engineering on it, drive it to the track, unload it, set everything up. Uh, I mean, basically, be every single thing, every role that's needed, and that would not cost a whole ton. Um, as I'm looking to do lights, there's definitely more or less a dedicated engineer. For every car, you will then have at least one mechanic, if not two. If it's a multi-car team, there might be floaters, right? There's certainly going to be a, quote, chief mechanic in each car. Don't know if there's going to be a dedicated second on every, but regardless, 
Um, there's going to be a manager of some sort, a team manager that's involved. It's just, again, scale, Sean, is where you start to look at how many hotel nights. <laughs> how many people are staying in hotel rooms? Do you need two, one room, two, three, four per entry? Um, meals, rental cars. Not trying to belabor the point here, but yeah, having towed USF 2000 cars or similar two tracks on an in an open trailer. <laughs> this is like, you know, back in the day when it was just truly that's what it was. SCCA Pro Racing USF 2000. Uh, and a van, towed with a van. And the van has toolboxes and tires and easy up canopies. But, you know, truly you could do it with a box van, an open trailer, and there you go. Not saying it's that kind of threadbare existence is what you want, but it can be done and races can be won. You start getting up to the upper echelons and yeah. So get that number down each year. Then I think we have some really good opportunities. I just don't know what the answer is other than fewer races. If you have to spend less to go and compete, then in theory you can bring the number down. But uh, what do you do? Do you do four races per weekend at whatever events you go to just to make up numerically? for the time on track and driver experience needed, you know, none of this, again, I wish there were easy answers. They'd be solved. If so, let's go to, uh, Alexi Hrushko. Alexi, thank you for sending this in. Um, and it's going to take a minute or two for me to answer because it's actually, I think, well, it veers more towards opinion than anything. And that's something I really hope to encourage more of here on future episodes and i just need to make a point of not just saying hey please send in your questions but hey if you got thoughts you got opinions you got hot takes that you feel the world must hear do not hesitate to send those in and i'm not saying that alexi has sent in crazy hot take but what he did send in is awesome he says greetings from ukraine this is great i don't know how many people listen to your podcast but at least you know you know have uh one listener here too says, I'm a huge fan of American racing. I started watching CART in 1993, NASCAR in 94, but stopped when they introduced the chase. And ALMS and IMSA in the end of the 90s. And he says, reading Racer Magazine two or three years ago when I discovered it in uh, the Apple App Store. It says, but started to listen to your podcast only this year. They're fantastic. Well, that's really kind of you. Uh, he says, wanted to thank you for the advice on buying Legacy of Justice. It's a, the autobiographical book. Now I can't speak words. This is funny. Uh, as we're at 80 minutes in the 60-minute Q&A session. I swear it's only 60 minutes. Uh, this is the autobiography of the Justice family written by Ed Justice Jr. Uh, Ed, who is the awesome and amazing patron of the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, Justice Brothers. So I'm glad that you have purchased that and enjoying that right now. Uh, Alexi, he says... On the similar topic here, what's wrong with Indy Light Series? Ten years ago, we had 15 cars in average at each event. Then it folded to 10 to 12 in the middle of the 2010s. In 2016, the number of drivers increased again. But last two years, we have eight to nine cars. So racing is great. Freedom 100 is one of its favorites. Um, but why don't as many teams uh, and drivers compete in the series? And asks why Carlin and Schmidt-Peterson turned off their programs. Are the costs so high? Are the marketing so low? So this does come back. I know that I just answered the cost, turning things down financially as well would be huge help. Um, 
I mean, the other other point here to raise, and it's certainly of great value, and we haven't seen it yet, Alexi. It's that with the previous Indie Lights formula, uh, the Infinity Pro series, as it kicked off, um, those cars were around for a really long time. They were pretty Stone Age technology. I mean, they're you know they might have been brand new when they were new, but they were old. And there's just nothing cutting edge about them. Motors were just, you know, big old lumpy Nissan V8s. Worked great. Again, no issues with them at all. They just, you know, technology's end was not being explored. So they did not cost a ton to buy. They were very, call them inexpensive to run and maintain. Paid off relatively soon. And so since they hung around for so long, Alexi, teams had the ability to offer seats for the season that seemingly anybody could afford. That's why we had used to have really big numbers. Lots of cars were around. They're all paid for teams. Didn't have to recoup a ton of money by uh, charging big numbers every year to get their money back. We've yet to reach that point with the new Delara IL 15 Indy lights car. Realize it came out in 2015. We're here in 2019 a handful of years old but it's not crazy old yet but what we haven't seen is the aha okay and now after three four five years numbers start to creep down creep down creep down we've yet to see that and this is yet another thing i need to try and understand but don't i hope it happens i hope that we get to a place where just even if we're sticking with this model for however many years, in theory, we should be at a place where they're paid off and teams don't have to charge as much. I hope that is coming because, boy, do we need it a heck of a lot sooner than later. All right, where are we going to go for our last couple of questions? Mike Jablo, who do you rank as a top three race strategist currently in IndyCar? I can't really say in terms of who is one and who is three, but the two obvious ones that stand out, I would say are Tim Sindrick and Mike Hull. The third one is the one that fascinates me a little bit, Mike, because I don't know if I've put in enough thought to have a super strong opinion on that. <sighs> Granted. <laughs> We have seen absolutely nothing to suggest that his talents have been massively explored the last two-ish years or so. But Brian Hurtis sure seems like a pretty smart guy in that department. And when Mr. Rossi was in the seat it sure seems like Brian was able to come up with some pretty effective thought processes on strategy that his driver would then reward with something really, really, really good. Um, beyond that, I mean, there are plenty of folks who are really good at what they do. I'm just trying to think of like, wow, okay, who's truly standing out here? Um, I think Kyle Moyer might be another one who – is really impressing me. I mean, there's, you know, Michael Andretti can do some pretty good stuff there too. I mean, there's, maybe that's an interesting thing I need to think about 
exploring more in the off season, Mike. The top two, I think most people would think of as Cindric and Hull. I know Cindric seemed to be a little, little maybe iffy there for a little bit when he was Will Power in the latter stages of the Will Power era, but. Yeah, he seems to be making more righter than wronger um, in his uh, having moved timing stands. So, yeah, but that's a good one to think about, Mike. It's funny. I, I can't – I should be able to come up with like, oh, this person's easily the third. Um, so hopefully I'll have some of my friends who are strategists saying, hey, jackass, you forget who I am. Um, let's go to Steve Hamilton. says, mid-Ohio is great, all caps. But why are IndyCar's TV ratings so low? Is it worrying to the teams in series? And having taken a quick look to make sure I had a number to look at, I got a .6 for Mid-Ohio on NBC proper big channel, not little channel. And yeah, boy, part of me wonders if it was the late start East Coast time. Uh, knowing that Indiana, Lap, Indianapolis, I was trying to say in California and Indianapolis and ended up with Indianapolis. Anyways, Indiana, we know the Midwest, there are a couple pockets, you know, uh, outside of the Midwest that really love IndyCar. California is one of them is huge traffic wise. And so I think the timing, you know, we might've, I don't know this, I'm pulling it out of my butt, but I'm guessing that. The West Coast might have been a pretty good contributor to that rating number, knowing that it was on at a friendly time here. But late start, I'm guessing, probably didn't help. Uh, but regardless, yeah, I mean, uh, 0.6 on network, I mean, it's better than a 0.2 or 3 on cable, obviously. But yeah, boy, Steve, I'm with you, man. Really hoping that was a lot going to be a lot higher. All right, we're getting down to, believe it or not, the last two questions. Caleb Gerald. Caleb, I think this might be your first time sending something in. If so, keep sending them. Any chance Colton Herta goes to McLaren? Does Steinbrenner join with potential Arrow Schmidt Peterson Motorsports merger as well? Or does Steinbrenner help find fun? I think you meant fund a car with Andretti for Askew or Ryan Norman if Herta moves. Um, so I think Robin might have mentioned this in his the stuff behind the Rossi uh, negotiation story. Colton Herta doesn't go anywhere unless Michael Andretti wants him to go somewhere. Um. Don't know all the specifics. This isn't a secret. Uh, I don't know if it's been written about too much, but, um, you know, Michael Andretti is definitely helping to make sure that Colton Herta is an IndyCar driver. Um, we love ourselves some George Steinbrenner the fourth and really truly hope that he has a big future as a team owner. Being a team owner, though, involves owning equipment or bringing money, if not both. To my knowledge, young George does not own the car that Colton drives. And there's certainly been questions as to how much money young Steinbrenner brings to the equation. So I love the idea of George helping someone else if 
Colton were to move again, I don't foresee Colton going anywhere unless Michael decides he wants that to happen, which if I'm Michael, that's silly. Uh, Colton could and should be a championship winning driver under the Andretti Autosport slash Andretti Harding Steinbrenner or Andretti Steinbrenner or just straight up Andretti and no one else banner. Um, I would not let that kid loose ever, 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 ever. Um, you raise a greater point here of, Hey, could someone else try and tap in? Love it. You know, if I'm McLaren, I'm asking, how do I make that happen? If I'm anyone else, I'm seeing if I can make that happen. If I'm Michael, I'm saying no, (laughs) nope. Um, no, we're good. But the question to me here is, is there a, a, a jump off point, Caleb, where if the Steinbrenner side or the Harding side or both, whatever, continue to struggle to find money to make the 88 Honda stay on track, is there a point where Michael says, okay, uh, we got it. <laughs> we'll take it from here. I hope not. I don't want to see an entry lost from the HSR outfit for sure numerically you could say well if that if they went away but michael added a car then we're staying at the same entry number well true i just don't like to see teams go away good people they need paychecks and money and you know uh yeah more is better in my head so i'm hoping things stay i don't believe colton goes anywhere unless michael decides that's going to be the case yeah um in the aerospm merger again boy I don't know what all's going on, but I can tell you that there's something. And yeah, more on a future episode. We're going to close here with Nick Fletcher. And I just moved this to the end because it's been asked. But I, the fact that it keeps getting brought up just tells me more good IndyCar fans are thinking all kinds of really smart stuff. And I love that. Used to be a time where the reporters were the ones were doing all the thinking, (laughs) not all, but a lot of the thinking and, you know, times have changed so much in the world and in every capacity that fans of whatever sport, music, you name it. No one thinks of themselves as passive. Hey, I got to wait for someone else to tell me about something. Uh, Folks really dive in. And I, again, I love this. I love the fact that whether it's my listeners, my readers, other people's listeners, readers, whatever, like, you know, y'all challenge us a lot and y'all teach us and or raise things, raise points that I try to be as try to mention it whenever it pops into my head. Like, man, I really should have thought of that. Thanks for bringing it up. It's a cool thing. Um, you know, I don't need the Pruitt knows more than anyone. I don't never have never will. I love it when y'all are saying, Hey dummy, think about this or just raising really good salient points like Nick who is the latest person to say on the topic of the new engine and chassis with hybrid technology being a priority for many manufacturers. Is there a chance of developing or possibly technology already available being available to harness energy to power the hybrid portion similar to Kurs, maybe replacing push to pass And so the latter part, Nick, is what some others have raised in somewhat recent episodes. Hey, couldn't we use a hybrid energy boost to replace turbo boost? Yes, I believe that's what would happen if IndyCar were to adopt 
um, an electric battery-based system that would then make these cars hybrids with hybrid propulsion systems. That would be amazing. Um, Talking about technology already being available to harness this, yeah, um, it's there. It can be done off the shelf. There are numerous vendors that do this. Either, I wouldn't say something that could bolt right onto an IndyCar. It would certainly need some customization. But yeah, there are multiple vendors. And I have to believe, Nick, that every year more and more will come to the fore. Hey, that rhymes. Uh, With, hey, we could help. We could do this. Here's the battery. Here's the this. Here's the code. Here's... Are all the different things needed to create this bolt-on turnkey system. So, yeah, I definitely think that IndyCar, if they choose to go this route, will have a, a, a blessing in terms of how many they can choose from in terms of potential vendors, whether it's one simple, complete thing, uh, effectively one-stop shopping with one vendor, or pulling a couple together, hey, we like you that do this. Your battery is amazing, and you overhear your deployment. And not sure how they would go about it, but I know that they should have plenty of things to make this not the craziest thing or the hardest thing in the world to bring to life. And that's it, friends. I'm staring at my little clock that says we're at about 95 minutes, but of course, since we never went over 60 minutes on this episode, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. I really appreciate y'all hanging in and I'll just say it one last time. Thanks for some great questions. There were no duds. Uh, Even the ones that I've answered recently, I was happy to bring them up again because just more awesome stuff from some new voices like Nick, Caleb, a few others, like I said, Alexi, thank you, Sean, Um, all those who are writing in for the first time, keep it up. Scott as well, Scott Wharton, I believe. I might feels like you might have written in before, but if not, again, I apologize. Isosceles, etc., etc. Thanks for sending in a bunch of great stuff. Thanks for making me laugh with a lot of these, or just bringing up great points that hadn't fallen into my silly little head. Um, great stuff. Look forward to coming back to you next week here on the good old week in IndyCar. Hopefully, you enjoyed it. If it's your first time listening in and you got this far boy you're a trooper i feel like i owe you something and thank you finally to cooper tires the justice brothers and torontomotorsports.com and also our eternal friends at bell racing helmets usa i am marshall pruitt saying farewell it is 11:07 p.m on monday night the 29th i'm gonna go eat dinner oh by the way seriously if dixon wins the sixth championship IndyCar damn well better name the series Scott, at least for one day, or we're going to have problems. <laughs>